I'm I'm leaning towards uh, paint the square just because we talked yes. about like you're always a sucker for the one that tells you what this show is about. But fine, uh, it fine. always gives us a hint of something that's about paint the square. Yeah, and and, and I like. I mean, possibly true myths is fine, but no one's going to be wondering what it's about because there's lots of things that we talk about. Like someone probably just said something I thought was a myth, and but it might be true, ha, whatever. But paint the square. I'd be like, what the hell is that about? I like the ones where there's no way you could possibly know what the hell it's going to be about. <laughs> like you won't guess. Like it's not it's not a cliche and it's not a general statement about whatever. It's it's like they talked about painting. Was it is it about painting pixels or something in the news about painting? Something in the news about squares? No, no. Totally random. Well, I've been talking on and off over the last few episodes about ISH, which is a kind of Linux uh, shell on the iPad. And somehow we've caught the attention of the author, and now I'm basically making verbal feature requests, which is magnificent for me. And uh, as of the most recent version that was posted to test flight a couple of days ago, it now supports my beloved YouTube download, which is tremendous. It is pretty slow to start the download, but once the download starts, it actually rips pretty well, and it works perfectly fine. I've been extremely impressed. Uh, Unfortunately, the Files app integration has had a bit of a bug happen to it, so I do not see any files in the Files app. So I have this wonderful media file sitting within my little Linux shell that I can't get anywhere. So that's a little (laughs) bit of a bummer, but... One step at a time, everyone. Uh, additionally, I should specify that uh, there's no FFmpeg at this time, but I believe it is on the to-do list, although probably not immediately. But it is. Uh, I remain incredibly impressed about what ISH does. It is extremely cool, and you should check it out if you have an iPad. Actually, I think it works on iPhone as well, but especially if you have an iPad, it's, it's good stuff. Moving on, uh, a lot of people have written in with some Google Photos workarounds for me. If you recall from last episode, I was uh, complaining and convetching about how I really hate the Google Drive, whatever it's called, uploader. And I was happy to hear, well, sad, but happy to hear that pretty much anyone who wrote in agreed with me that the new Google Drive sync, whatever it's called, is a piece of hot garbage and doesn't work for almost anyone. And I am kind of happy to to know that I'm sharing in my misery. Uh, a lot of people had recommended something I didn't even think about as an option, which I thought was brilliant, but I don't think will work, question mark. What was recommended was to use the Synology's Cloud Sync. So if you don't have a Synology, the Cloud Sync basically lets you connect to Dropbox or Google Drive, and uh, among many other places, and let you sync up a local copy of all these things. So it acts as a Dropbox client. It can act as a Google Drive client. And there's many, many other services it, it can interact with. And what they were saying was, just point the Synology Cloud Sync to your Photos repository and tell it to sync with Google Drive. And then you don't need to use Google's piece of monkey crap app on your, on your iMac. And that sounds all well and good, but first of all, you have to you have to coerce Google Photos to use Google Drive in a in a way that makes the photos available to Google Drive as a whole. Like it always uses the same storage uh, area, if you will, but but none of your photos are usually visible in Google Drive unless you check some checkbox somewhere. You have to Google for the link. Um, and I did that. And the problem I have is that the photos in Google Drive are all flattened into one gigantic folder, whereas all of them in, on my you know, Synology are in this you know, fairly deep folder structure where I have years and then I have months and then, and then you know, all the photos are in there. And I'm, I'm really hesitant to try to tell the two to sync because I'm assuming the Synology is going to try to push all these folders up to Google Drive 
And I'm guessing it's not going to be smart enough to deduplicate, but maybe I'm wrong. So if you have experience with this, please uh, let me know. Just uh, you know, find me on Twitter or send an email or something. But I've not actually tried it, tried the solution, even though in principle, I really like the idea of it. Related to that, uh, some people have written in saying that they had an idea, and that is to create a DMG on the Synology and then mount that on your Mac. So that means your Mac treats this individual file on the Synology as an entire file system or volume unto itself. So Paul Oswald wrote in, my, my first instinct when trying to back up some stuff across various file systems and whatnot was to create a DMG, but the Synology doesn't seem to support creating or reading DMG files out of a directly attached disk, because he was backing up some directly attached disks. My next step was going to be to use a Mac to copy the disk over, but the Synology, over to the Synology as a DMG over the network, but I wondered if there was a better way to handle just backing up a disk to his Synology. So, John, how do we back up a physical volume onto Synology in a way that works? Well, there's a couple aspects of this. If people who aren't Mac users um, or haven't dealt with disk images before, the idea is kind of like what Casey said, where it's a it's not just a single file, actually. Most of the good formats that you'd want to use are actually directories full of files um, that you can mount on your Mac, and the Mac thinks they are a volume formatted with whatever you want them to be formatted with, APFS, HFS+, whatever. So as far as the Mac is concerned, it doesn't know that, you know, this isn't really a disk attached to your computer. Actually, it's a file sitting on a NAS. So that would that would get around the photos thing. Um, the other aspect of that that's interesting, as uh, mentioned by Paul Oswald, is that because it is a bunch of files on a NAS, but when mounted, it looks like a volume uh, of, a, of a Mac format if there are weird file naming things like mac the rules for mac file names are slightly different than the rules for file names and other file systems especially in hfs plus where it does the uh, uh unicode normalization it has all this other stuff and there's different forbidden characters uh, like you can't use colons in hfs plus because that's actually the path separator under the covers um, stuff like that can come up when for example if you tried to put a photo you know a photos like apple photos library onto a volume that's not one of Apple's uh, volume formats. Like if you put it onto your Synology and it's ext4 or BTRFS or something like that, you may find out that it can't even copy them over there, not even for backup purposes, because some of the file names inside the photo library uh, run afoul of the rules of the target file system. So disk images let you get around that. You say, well, I'm still u- I'm still putting the data on an ext4 volume, on a BTRFS volume, or whatever, you're still putting the data on a non-Mac volume, but because it's in a disk image, you get to pick the volume format and your Mac isn't any of the wiser. Now, all that said, the problems are, as, as Paul pointed out, like, well, your Mac can mount that as a disk image, but as far as anything on the Synology is concerned, it's just like a weird directory full of files. It, the Synology can't make heads or tails of it. It doesn't, it doesn't understand that you're supposed to mount it and treat it as a volume because all the software to do that is on your Mac. And he was saying, yeah, well, you can just have a Mac do that for you. Like, that, that's, that's basically the answer. Like, I don't think Synology is ever going to add support for Mac-specific disk image formats. Um, but I still think it is a semi-viable solution. The problem, of course, is that you're going through two layers of abstraction here. So you've got the actual file system, which is organizing a bunch of things on the disk, and then you've got the disk image format. Even if you pick the quote-unquote most efficient one, like a sparse bundle or something, where you don't have to pre-allocate all the disk space for it, and it writes out these little stripe files that are like, I don't know, like 200 megs each, or I don't know how big they are. But anyway, it make, it's, these evenly sized files that it writes, 
you're going through multiple lever, levels of, uh, of fakery where the Mac thing is writing to an HFS volume that goes through the, the disk image driver that writes out the Stripe files, and those in turn get written as actual files on the BTRFS volume, and that's all going over SMB or whatever thing that is uh, your Synology is, is mounted as. So I think it could work, but I wouldn't recommend it. Um, and if something goes wrong and something is weird and corrupted inside your disk image, it's not easy to recover from and you could like I, I, what i'm saying is i wouldn't recommend this approach the only time i've used this approach is for things like using super duper to clone your drive to the synology uh, again unless you have hfs plus formatted volumes on your synology you can't do a direct clone but you can tell super duper to say see this disk over here make a mac disk image of it over there and then you can put that disk image on any volume that can hold just like plain old normal files like no mac specific stuff um, so to answer this question in a long way, away, I'm not aware of any solution other than having a Mac read and write those uh, disk image files. Uh, but it is something to keep in mind and to keep in your back pocket for situations where either you want to do it temporarily just to have some space to move stuff around in the, in the tile game that is your storage life. Or <laughs> if you want to do, uh, backups, uh, of entire computers or volumes or whatever to a volume format that is not a Mac specific one. Moving on. There, we got some feedback from Chad Bailey with regard to how do you move from one career to another? And this is a little bit long. I've actually pared it down quite a bit, but it was really, really, really good. So please bear with me. But Chad writes, an increasing number of people I hire are coming from non-traditional backgrounds, meaning they went to a code school or otherwise self-taught. They often end up being the highest performance performers on my team because they're consistently hardworking, eager, and adaptive. At first, I thought it might be because they're in their honeymoon period with the tech industry and haven't been burned by all its challenges yet. But I'm realizing the thing that they all have in common is that they wanted something, a new career, and they were willing to work hard to get it. You have to overcome the inertia of life to change career paths like they have, even more so as you get older. So as someone who's worked in several different employer jo- developer jobs and is now a manager, I'd so much rather work with someone who might not know the specifics of a technology in question, but has demonstrated an eagerness to learn than I would someone who had a strong institutional background on paper, but thought they were God's gift algorithms. My advice to the listener would be this. It's important to have a goal to work toward and accomplish rather than just randomly learning and half-building things. Having a specific thing you want to build is a good substitute. Keep making things until you've made something you're proud enough, proud of enough to show off in an interview. By the time you've built a few things, you'll start developing the taste you need to make that determination of what's quote-unquote good enough. In the interviews, lean hard on how hard you've worked to learn what you've learned so far and your eagerness to get better. It'll ingratiate you to the interviewer so much more than someone who leans back in their chair and rolls their eyes when the interviewer mentions an older queuing technology in one part of their app. I thought that was really, really great and a really good summary of what we were, I think, all three of us trying to say last episode. So in summary of, of that summary, I would say give it a shot. If, you're, if you want to change careers, you can't hurt to try and uh, definitely give it a shot. I, but I appreciate it, Chad. I thought that was great feedback. I, I think that uh, that advice is mostly for uh, people who are hiring, not for the people interviewing so much, because although I think all that is true, there is still the other kind of interviewer who's like, well, you don't have all the check boxes, or you don't have experience, or I'm kind of wary of self-taught people. Like that attitude definitely is out there. The truth is, is I think, you know, what you just read, where showing that you are able to, you know, that you're brave enough to make a career change and that you're able to do it successfully, showing like that you've put effort into it or whatever, you're not just kind of like sleepwalking through your career, is a great indicator that you might be a good hire, right? Like, oh, like everything that Chad said is true. Um, But there are definitely jobs out there, hiring managers out there, you know, like just especially people who don't know much about technology, 
but are in charge of hiring people to work on technology. They're just like, just show me the keywords in the resume, show me the degree. And like, because they don't know anything about technology, they don't know how else to hire. Uh, those jobs exist. You don't want those jobs, by the way. Like, you, you don't want the job where the person hiring you doesn't know anything about technology. But uh, <laughs> be aware of those other. So I would say uh, Chad's advice goes out to anyone who is thinking about hiring people. If you are a technical person and you know about technology and you're uh, in charge of or contribute to the hiring of people, keep this in mind because it's easy to fall back into the trap of like, well, there's these two people and I'm not sure this person doesn't have a degree and they, they say they're self-taught, but I'm a little bit wary. I feel more comfortable picking the person from MIT, right? Uh, that's not the best instinct, especially if the other person, you know, used to be, uh, you know, an accountant or something and has changed careers. It, you know, it does show, uh, you know, wherewithal and motivation and uh, an eagerness that may not exist with the MIT person who just expects to glide right into the job. I would also say, too, like it, we, we got a couple of people who, in response to our, our bit about this last week, um, who said, like, well, you know, if you're lucky, you have time to make a GitHub profile or to make your own code on the side to show them. But what if you don't have time? What if you're busy working a job and you can't and like, you know, your previous jobs don't let you share your code or whatever else? Like there's a lot of, you know, because we mentioned like you should if you can show something you've done, either a personal project or GitHub uh, contributions or something like that, like, you know, that's that's powerful. But I, I did want to mention here that I, I don't think I said enough last week that if you even have a GitHub profile with anything in it, you're going to be like one, you're going to be one of like 1% of the applicants who have that. If you can program at all, you're going to be already in like the top quarter of applicants, right? Like I, you, you may, you know, it's, it's easy to, to, to hear about, you know, all the hot shots and all the, the high end jobs from the big companies, you know, and to think, if you're new to the field or if you're trying to get into programming, it's it's easy to think like that you're totally outclassed, that that you know everyone's way better than you and you you are not at all qualified and you don't have any chance or whatever. But in addition to just wanting it, if you have any aptitude at all for programming, if you can do it at all, and they give you like a coding test in the interview, and if you can actually complete the coding test, and even if it's simple things, you were you are going to be already in the top small percentage of people if you can even complete a coding test in the interview and if you have if you've done anything on the side that you can show them will put you way ahead of everybody else i you know you, you may not realize because again like you see like the high profile you know the, like, the top tier you hear about all these great developers these great companies but the, the like most applicants for most programming jobs just can't do it they just can't even program at all and they don't care and they can't learn. So if you can do any or all of those things, like you will be ahead of them by a lot and you stand a better chance than you think of getting those jobs. Yeah, then the the, the more desirable jobs will, you know, want to test you more, uh, you know, more vigorously and you will have to not just be able to just sort of do it, but do it well. But there's, to Marco's point, there's a reason the FizzBuzz test is a thing that people know about in the programming world. I'll put a link in the show notes, but FizzBuzz is a like a programming quiz like here solve this problem by writing a program to solve it and the problem i think it's based on a kid's game but the problem is basically like i forget but it's like the if a number is divisible by five print fizz if the number is divisible by 15 print buzz and if it's divisible by both five and 15 print fizz buzz like it sounds like 
the world's easiest programming problem. It's, you know, you can, you can see the code in your head if you're a programmer, right? Why would you ever, why is this a thing? Why would you ever give someone this test? It's, it's practically like asking them to write hello world. It's like, well, are you going to give me a problem or are you just going to, whatever? Like FizzBuzz seems to have no utility in the interview process. And yet, uh, FizzBuzz is, is described in this, in this page that we'll put in the show notes probably is a way to filter out the 99.5% of programming job candidates who can't seem to program their way out of a white paper bag. Like it actually <laughs> is a useful, it actually is a useful tool. You would think that it's not a useful tool at all. It's like, I'm, I'm asking you to do literally the minimum necessary in any language you want just to show that you can program like almost anything. It's harder than hello world, but not much harder than hello world. And yet it, it, it ends up making interviewers lives easier because you just quickly eliminate the people who just can't do it at all. And it's kind of, I don't know, I'm trying to, can't think of an analogy for another job, but it's like if you are hiring somebody uh, to be a painter and you asked the, you, you brought in uh, like a one square foot uh, piece of wood and said, please paint this piece of wood. And, and like 99% of them couldn't do it. You're like, well, I eliminated all the painters who can't paint at all, right? Like you're not even judging them how, how well they paint, how elegant the solution is. It's like paint this square. And then someone gets a bucket of paint and pours it on their head. You're like, okay, well, you have to leave because you didn't, you didn't get any paint on the square. And the job of painting really does involve putting the paint where we want you to. Like that's FizzBuzz. And it is, you know, it's not it's not an obscure thing in the world of, of programming interviews. And it's kind of a sad statement, but it's true. Um, but like I said, if you do want to get a job at like Google or something, they're going to ask you to do a hell of a lot more than FizzBuzz. But not every job is Google. And maybe, you know, they're even though Google gives you free food and does your laundry and whatever the hell they do. Uh, you can find a really good programming job uh, uh, at, you know, much smaller, less high profile places. Yeah. So thanks again to Chad. Uh, I thought that was really good feedback. Finally, uh, John, what happened to 5k displays? And this is relevant because my dad actually just today uh, received a brand new 13 inch MacBook pro and quick aside, he actually, his initial, uh, response to the touch bar was positive. He seemed really into it uh, based on you know 15 minutes of use, but I was somewhat surprised by that. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, he has also bought, bought himself the LG 5K display. I haven't told him how hit or miss uh, those things I'm are. I'm so because sorry. I had, yeah, I, I, I'm trying not to open that can of worms. But nevertheless, uh, you know, a year or two ago when I was looking into this for work, I was looking into potentially getting a 5K display. I ended up getting a 4K display or two 4K displays, actually, and they worked really well. Uh, and at the time, there were at least a handful of options for 5K displays. Most notably, Dell made one that seemed to be reasonably well received. But it seems, John, that they're all gone now. Tell me about this. I thought of this because of how upset I was when Apple said they were going to stop making displays. Uh, and, you know, of course, now Apple said they are going to make displays, so we're, we're in the good times now. But in the bad old times, <laughs> I was like, oh, Apple should make a display because then I listed all these reasons why I like Apple displays. But even then, even in my, in my depths of despair, I didn't think, okay, well, if Apple stops making displays, uh, I would have to buy, like, you know, a Dell display or some LG display that we just talked about or, like, I don't know, like I'd an asus display or who knows an nec display like I'd, I'd i'd have to buy a non-apple 5k display uh since i haven't been paying attention to this market at all adam angston tidbits writes that if you want to buy a 5k display it's not like you can go to all those vendors that i just listed and just you know or get like some weird bargain basement one from korea with a no-name brand like you don't have a lot of choices in fact if you want to buy one like your only choice is the lg ultrafine 5k display if you want to buy it today and 
and you would have to order online. You can't even see it displayed in any place. Unless maybe you go to the Apple store and see it. There are a bunch of other ones that like aren't for sale, but are listed from these weird brands or whatever. But people in general are not making 5K displays. Like it's not a, cop- a popular resolution. Obviously, panels are made by whoever Apple uses for their iMac. So the, the panels are out there. But it's kind of depressing that no one else in the market seems interested in making displays like this. And it makes some sense because like, all the gaming monitors are going to be 4K because no game consoles put out 5K. Uh, PC gamers, maybe they could take advantage of, but honestly, if they get a 4K display and they could drive that at a high frame rate, they I think they'd prefer that over a 5K display and it sacrifices you know frame rate for the sake of uh, some extra pixels that the game might not even use effectively. And of course, multiple monitors is more common now than it used to be. Um, so maybe one big honking display is not uh you know a, a thing that is desired by the market but i i was surprised to learn that how many years after the 5k iMac came out you can't just go to any uh monitor vendor and get a 5k display you're stuck with the lg one or even sketchier things uh, and the uh, and, and if you don't want that you can just wait with the rest of us for this summer when presumably apple will introduce its presumably 5k display for its presumed mac pro so a few things about that. But first of all, are you sure, like, because Dell had theirs, but it seemed like it was maybe being discontinued, the uh, the UP2715K, is that a thing that still exists, or is that gone? Well, we'll link to the article, like, there's an whole article about this, and it's tidbits, and it's Adam Manx, so I'm, I'm right. pretty sure he was thorough, like, in looking at what you can, you know, he lists a bunch of things that look promising, but, uh, you know, aren't actually available, or... You know, there's one that says on Amazon that ships directly from Japan but has no ratings or reviews. <laughs> is, so it, is it the maybe. planar one? The planar? The, the, uh, the planar IX2790 that has zero reviews. It claims to be this thing. And the reason I, I know about this um, is that the when, we were, when, my, when I was trying to figure out how to test the iPad Pro's 5K support, the iPad Pro can't use the LG 5K because the LG 5K requires a Thunderbolt signal not just USB-C DisplayPort. So the the LG 5K, and this, this alone is kind of a hilarious mess. The iPad Pro supports 5K displays over the USB-C connector. The LG 5K monitor that's sold in Apple stores and compatible with almost every Mac has a USB-C looking plug on the end of its cable, but it does not work with the iPad Pro. <laughs> <laughs> or the 12 inch MacBook, by the way, and and so as far as I know, uh, and so what what you need to get 5K support for the new iPad Pro is you need a 5K monitor that that accepts that signal over a USB-C plug, but using the DisplayPort protocol. And as far as I could find, zero monitors on the market that can do this exist, except maybe this Planar iX2790. But I was unwilling to. Uh, to actually try to buy one for $1,000 and try to figure out if it actually worked or not. Yeah, look at the data in this article. This is quoting from the article. It says, The Wikipedia page for 5K resolution lists a small number of 5K displays, including displays from Dell, Philips, and HP, but as far as I can tell, none are currently for sale, apart from a handful of ultra-wide monitors with unusual aspect ratios, like 64 to 27 and 32 by 9. Right, and, and there was... So technically 5K. Or, I think earlier, I think yesterday, there was, there was a review on The Verge of there is an LG monitor that's 5K across, but only like the 4K... Uh, uh, vertical resolution mm-hmm. so it's just like ultra and it's like 34 inches so it's like really big and wide so like it would not be suitable for a mac because that's 
that's neither like again obligatory link to the Bajango article on on like what makes good retina resolutions at, at good screen sizes um it's like it's too big of a size to run it at retina size but it's too small of a size to run it at 1x so it's it's a very strange intermediary size but i was thinking too so so assuming that 5k monitors basically barely exist because that does seem to be the the status quo here and assuming that pc monitor buyers seem totally uninterested in them which does seem to be the case after you know all these years of them existing on the mac side in the, in the form of the imac uh i i do wonder do we think there is a chance because one of the responses that we got uh when we when we talked about this last year when i talked about this somewhere on twitter i forget how it came up one of the responses was that all the high-end monitor makers and video card makers and everything are skipping 5k and going straight to 8k and I have not heard anything more about this. There is an 8K Dell monitor mm-hmm. that is for sale for only four thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and it does. You know, the reviews of it say like, "Yep, it it is indeed a 5K monitor." Although it's too, 8K. or sorry, 8K, but it's too small. See, if you go back to that Bajango chart of what makes for a good, you know, what makes for you know correct sizing on a Mac of either, you know, whether you're going to run the monitor at one X or two X, you, you know, you want. You want things on screen to fall within a certain like physical size range. That's kind of like a traditional size range, so that things on screen don't look too big or too small. You, they just look either sharp or not sharp, right? So whether you're running in Retina or non-Retina, the correct size for an 8K monitor to be in that range is about 37 inches. So I'm wondering, a, you know, why Dell didn't go bigger with theirs because it's probably cheaper to go bigger. So why they only went for like 32 or 34, whatever it is, I don't know. And B, do we think Apple might be doing this? Do we think that the Apple Pro display that's rumored for, you know, or that's that's stated to be released sometime in 2019, uh, do we think that will be 8K? And do we think it'll be 37-inch range? We talked about that one back when we were talking about uh, our Mac Pro dreams, and there were a bunch of rumors about it being 8K. I mean, the obvious application of 8K is so you can watch 8K video at native resolution which doesn't really exist i mean it does like 8k video exists cameras exist that you can you know like it's not common but it is a thing right? yeah but you can't like go and buy an 8k movie no no i'm just saying like for video like we'll take we'll shoot and very often a video is shot at a much higher resolution that it's going to be mastered at or whatever right but so you could shoot at 8k and then you could crop to a 4k you know sub rectangle anyway uh shooting at 8k is a thing and it would be weird if you could shoot in 8k but you could never actually view it in 8k right so there has to be something out there like this dell ridiculous 8k monitor and the fact that it's not the right size for you know basically using ui might not be that bad if the only thing you're using it for is essentially a display monitor to show you like your rendered video outputs you can look at it and see how everything is coming together or whatever and you're still doing your editor editing on your 4k monitor with the the down sampled stuff um and that that's why i think i mean the Mac Pro should be able to drive an 8K display if there's a you know video card that can do it, but I don't think it's time for Apple to introduce an 8K display just for the reasons you said that if it's appropriately sized it would be huge, and who actually needs that? It's either people doing 8K video, in which case maybe that size actually isn't that good because they might want something that's a more reasonable size even if it's like quote unquote too small for a UI. They're not going to put their UI on it anyway. Um, and 5K is, has been Apple standard, and like I think, I think, I think you have to bend your neck more. Does it like if you ha- if you sat in front of a 37 <laughs> inch thing, like just to look from one side of the monitor to the other? I mean, I guess people with dual monitors do that all the time. It just it seems like it might be over the limit of 
single monitor size. Uh, and at, that, at that point, you might want to have two monitors that you can arrange. So I don't rule it out because, you know, with Apple, you don't want to rule anything out. But, I mean, I, I hope Apple doesn't skip 5K because I feel like 5K is a really good sweet spot. It's it's a beautiful-looking, really big monitor where everything is, you know, if you if you make it the same physical size as the iMac display, that's good. That is a good, really good single monitor that's a nice compromise between having two monitors and one, and it's very sharp and crisp, and they have the panels and yada yada. Like, don't overthink it, Apple. Just make a 5K display. If they want to offer an 8K as well, that would be awesome, but every discussion of Apple's upcoming display has been singular, not plural. So I'm not I'm not willing to believe that they're going to come out with two, but if they come up with one monitor and it's 8K, I'm actually going to be disappointed because it's going to be tons of money. And if it's not 37 inch, the UI will be the wrong size. If it is 37 inch, I don't know if I can fit it in my house. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I I think it might be like, you know, we say this now, but like if you would have asked me in, you know, 2001, whether I thought that I would be using a 27 inch monitor, I would have said that's ridiculous. The 17 inch monitor I'm looking at now is already almost too big, right? <laughs> like it, 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 it yeah. seemed really big at the time. And yes, you know, eventually you do hit like field of view <laughs> ergonomic issues or like, you know, distance to the monitor. You know, it's, it, it, you do hit issues like that eventually. But, uh, you know, Apple used to sell a 30 inch monitor and they, they took that same resolution and crammed it down to 27 um, and it made everything a little bit smaller. But like the 30 was three more inches diagonal and it was big, but it was fine. And I know a lot of people who ran either multiple, well, not multiple 30s. I mean, I know Al Gore did, but not, no one else really. But like, I know people who had who would run a 30 inch and then next to it, a second monitor that was smaller, maybe, maybe a 24 or, or something like. So like, that was actually fairly common that I saw like, you know, in programming jobs and everything. Um, in fact, David Carp used that exact setup uh, right across the, the, you know, office from me. And so if you think about like, if somebody can use a 30 inch with a 24 inch next to it and make use of that space, then having a, you know, having a 27 inch just add like 50% roughly to, to its area or whatever it would be. That's actually not that crazy. Like that's, it's in a similar vein as people who would run a 30 inch with anything else or people who today have an iMac, a 27 inch iMac and might run a second monitor next to it. Like you're, you're talking about roughly the same like width or even actually less width than that if you did an 8k at 37 inches so it actually might like it, it seems crazy now but i bet like that statement won't age well like <laughs> I, I bet if you if these things actually do exist at some point and we can buy wonderful 37 inch 8k displays and that's what's on our that's what on, what's on all of our desks in 10 years that might be totally fine like i, I don't think the I, I think the the physics of like you know the field of view and how far you'd have to be from it and everything I do think that seems like it's really pushing the boundaries and might be might be over the line, but I can't say for sure that it is. It's not the 8K that's over. I feel like it's the 37 inches that's a little bit over because I don't think we've ever, like the biggest we've had is like maybe 34-inch, uh, but they have 34-inch CRTs. Maybe I'm misremembering, but I feel like the 37 inches, especially the aspect ratio of the of the current 5K display, it's not, it's, it's a little bit, a little bit big out of your field of view and like you really need to start switching to two monitors unless you go really wide obviously you could have a single monitor that is just you know one of those wraparound things or whatever but by the way those exist and people love them like they have yeah. those ultra wide you know mostly it's mm-hmm. pc people who, who buy them because the mac isn't that great at those resolutions but like they those exist already and they're 
actually quite plentiful these days. They're not that expensive, and the people who buy them usually really love them. So we're all, we already have monitors that are like in this width class. But that's just multiple monitors without gaps between them. Like I mean, sure. even, regardless of how it's actually implemented <laughs> behind the scenes, that's like you are signing up to turn your head, right? But if we also told you you have to move your head up and down, like it starts to become a little bit. Silly. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, Left and right, okay. Up and down, no, that's yeah. a deal breaker. Yeah, eight <laughs> K resolution is you know definitely doable. Like if they if they did a thirty inch with like a six K resolution, I think that would be a better sweet spot for where we are. Um, and I, once you start, you know going way bigger than your field of view i start thinking like can we just go to glasses like at that point like what are we even doing you know <laughs> like like it, once it starts being floor to ceiling wall to wall and you, and you have to like look under your desk to get to the dock like there is an actual physical absurdity limit to to the the field of view that you can fill with pixels that you want to use your screen you do want it to be more or less in front of you not around you and above you and behind you um unless you're like doing some you know again you're you're basically reinventing vr with like a giant sphere that encompasses you as grateful flight simulators and racing games maybe not so great for using excel did you see one of the things on the uh the cards against humanity black friday sale was basically the chair out of grandma's boy i kind of really wanted you keep referencing that movie (laughs) have you not seen it no no one has seen it but Uh, you oh (laughs) everyone everyone can tweet at syracusa everyone can tweet at syracusa and tell tell him how good Uh, grandma's boy is that thing that that was just like the monitor they showed which by the way i'm sure didn't come with the chair the monitor they showed was actually a tame version of one of those very wide uh you know uh, curved displays it didn't even look that wide over the last, I think, 24 hours, uh, Apple has formally announced the Apple Entrepreneur Entrepreneur Camp. Did we already know this was coming? I This was the first I'd heard of it. Okay, that's what I thought, too. But then I convinced myself that I'd heard of it and then forgotten. This is what happens when you have a terrible memory. Anyway, uh, the Apple Entrepreneur Camp is once a quarter. It's in Cupertino. Uh, you can apply for it, and your applications are kept on file f- uh, for a year. And they are for organizations that are founded and led by women. So in order to get into the entrepreneur camp, up to three members of your company may attend, but at least one must be a woman developer. One must must be the woman co-founder, founder, or CEO. And the third member of your team can be any gender. And Apple clarifies in a little asterisk. Uh, They say the following, quote, Apple believes that gender expression is a fundamental right. We welcome all women to apply to this program, quote, which I thought was really cool. Uh, It's continuing on uh, for this camp. You the the participants will meet with Apple executives, although they didn't specify who and leaders on a variety of topics. And then additionally, and this is where where I start to have my eyes bulge out of my head, the woman founder, co-founder or CEO and the woman developer will receive tickets to Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference directly following the lab attendance to stay connected with peers, meet other women in technology, and attend a special Apple Entrepreneur Camp alumni event at the conference. How freaking cool is this? One uh, thing I noted, uh, who noted on Twitter? Was it Chris Espinoza or maybe someone else who works at Apple? Um, The language that you read uh, that you quoted from Apple about uh, Apple believes in uh, the gender expression as a fundamental right, blah, 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 that is a nice change from the boilerplate you see in a lot of other places. So what they're getting at for people who don't know the the the, the code and, and the lingo or whatever is what they're <laughs> trying to say is uh, it, it's inclusive of, of transgender women, right? And the way that's often expressed in these type of requirements by companies that are trying to say, like, we're not going to discriminate, like, you know, everyone welcome. They're, what they say is 
uh, women or people who identify as women. I see that language all over the place. I don't know how transgender people feel about that, but it, it, to me, it always seemed like it was still like binning and putting in a category. It's like a women, and then as a second category, people who identify as women, saying, okay, there are actual women, and there are people who merely identify as women. And that's not what they mean with that language. They're trying to say the exact opposite. They're trying to say all are welcome, right? But the language doesn't read that way. And it's, I didn't, I, it never occurred to me what a better way to say that was. But every time I read it, I felt like it's, it's like you're trying to be inclusive, but you're kind of like singling people out. And so this language, which I have never seen before, you know, maybe I don't look at enough of these things was, uh, you know, they, they have the little Apple believes blah, blah, gender expression, fundamental, blah, blah, right? We welcome all women to apply to this program. That's the correct language because it doesn't put people into two separate bins. All women, transgender women are women. All women are welcome. Uh, and so whoever came up with that copy, whether they copied it or not, I, I applaud them because I think it is a it's a great innovation in, in corporate boilerplate for trying to say that we're not going to discriminate. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I just thought this uh, whole camp seems really cool. And, and I am very curious to hear what it's like. And they've announced the dates. Uh, let me stall for time while I try to figure out when they are. Uh, but there are four of them they've announced. The first one is January 28th through February 8th of this upcoming year. And then uh, April Fool's Day uh, through the 12th. And then July and October of next year as well. So uh, maybe mid-February we can start to hear about how this goes. And I am super duper curious. I would really love to hear more about this because it seems really cool and a really nice way to try to get you know, at least one underrepresented group, a little more exposure. And, and I think that's super awesome. And like, again, if you're, if you're hearing about this and you're like, wait, what are they doing? Why is there, why would they do this thing just for women? Is it some sort of holiday that I don't know about or whatever? Like it's, it's, uh, we've asked a lot in the past about what, what a company can do about the fact that most of the people who are working there in technology jobs are like white males, right? What, what can you do about it? It's like, well, you know, we, you know, they, they just don't apply uh, to our jobs. They're like, our, our hiring process and bias is the pipeline problem or whatever. There's all sorts of mm -hmm. things you can come up with. Um, and so like level one is like, are you doing anything as an organization that discourages uh, anybody except for people who look like they currently work there from applying? Is the language in your, you know, your job description sort of excluding people? Uh, does your culture exclude people? Like, there's a whole bunch of stuff you can do as, like, step zero of, like, are we as an institution doing anything that is essentially keeping people away? Like, we don't know. Maybe we don't even know we're doing it, right? Maybe every single picture on our homepage is a white guy smiling, right? Like, there are many things that you can do accidentally that's going to make someone go to your page and go, I guess this isn't a place for me because I don't see anybody like me who works there, right? So that's step zero. But say you've done all that or you're working on that and you're like, okay, we're not doing that. Like, we're really careful with the language of our job descriptions. We try to show all people that are like, we're not there yet. We know we're still like 90% white guys programming, right? But we, but we want to get there. So we want to make sure we're not scaring people away. What can we, what's our next step? What do we do next? It's like, uh, can we get more people to apply? Can we work on a hiring process? Th what they're doing here is, is another next step. It's, a, it's an active measure, essentially, to saying people, no matter how good we are at being welcoming and making an unbiased hiring process and doing all that stuff, we can't just sit there and say, we're doing everything right, and so this problem will solve itself. Instead, they're going to go out there and get these people. Like, which is smart if you're a company, smart from a financial and performance perspective, because there is untapped talent out there that you can go get that other people aren't going to get. They're either going to actively scare away or they're not going to make an effort to go get them. So 
This is this is an untapped resource. This is a competitive advantage to go find these people. So Apple, Apple wants these people. They want them to be developers on that platform. Maybe they want them to work for them. Like they want these people. They're going to go and get them. They're going to say, "We will make this thing just for you people, right? Not not for the people who we already are getting, right? For the people who are the, are the untapped resource, and we're going to actively spend money and essentially recruit you, recruit you to our platform, to our to our market or whatever. Hopefully, give you a good impression of Apple." And I think that is incredibly smart, and it's the obvious next step to take. Not to say that Apple has solved all the other problems in terms of hiring bias and corporate culture and all that stuff. Like I'm sure they're still working on those, but they can't be your only solution. Like if you just sit back there and say we are completely unbiased and awesome, and we'll just wait for the the women and minorities to come rolling in. Don't wait. Go out and get them. Like it's the smartest thing ever. Um, I think uh, Jesse Char had a, had a good uh, thing about that. One of the people who runs Layers. The Layers Conference that runs uh, concurrent with WWC had a good uh, YouTube video explaining explaining all the secrets behind Layers, which I don't think she should have done because they're awesome secrets. But anyway, now the world knows the secrets. And what does she do to get cool people at her conference? She goes out and gets them. She gives them tickets, says, you're a cool person. I don't see lots of people like you at conferences. Here, have a free ticket. Come to my thing. And it makes the conference better for everybody else who's there. And it makes them like the conference and maybe they'll come by next year. Like, it's just smart business, right? So if you're wondering why is Apple doing this thing with women, it's just smart business, and it's the obvious next step to take in trying to not be a homogenous company filled with all the people who have been there for decades. Do you think this is largely about hiring for Apple, or do you think it's just to get these women onto the platform? I mean, I don't know if they're trying to hire them to work at Apple, but like recruiting them as developers on the platform, like all that helps Apple. Come develop on our platform, not on other people's platforms. Come work mm-hmm. for us, not for other people. Like Again, it's an untapped resource of talent. And, you know, companies that you can plenty of studies as companies that are more diverse do better. They make more money. They have more innovative products like this is what you want. It's and other people aren't going out to, to get it. You go get it. It's, it's you know, it's a no brainer. How much does it cost for an Apple laptop that has a faster CPU than an iPad Pro? This is a super old topic that's been in there <laughs> since, since, since we were talking about uh, the iPad Pro. But when we were talking about the iPad Pro and its performance and all that stuff, I did a bunch of graphs, uh, and I know this is a podcast, and we can't like explain the graphs to you that well. So maybe we'll put a link into the Google Sheet that that is like publicly accessible that you can look at the graphs for yourself. Um, but I was trying to answer this question, like, okay, we see the iPad Pro, and we were getting some like Geekbench numbers for whatever, and we know how much the iPad Pro costs. If you wanted to get the same performance of you know insert com- compute intensive job, how much would you have to pay? for some other Mac. And I was picking laptops, but I suppose you could pick a Mac Mini or whatever. I threw a bunch of stuff in there and I, and I tried to graph it. Um, so a couple of caveats before we go into these graphs. Uh, they're Geekbench numbers, right? Geekbench, like all benchmarks, is not... It's representative of what it's representative of. It's a bunch of tasks that are mostly real-world tasks. They're not completely synthetic benchmarks, but it's a weird mix of them. And maybe you do one, not the other and like yada, yada. Like it doesn't, it's not the be all end all, but it's a, it's a number that we have that we can compare roughly what's going on. The other thing about Geekbench is you run it and then you, your computer submits the numbers that it ran or whatever. So the numbers vary for the same computer and you could lie and report your computer is the wrong thing. And like, so these aren't like set in stone or whatever, but it's just, it's just trying to give us a ballpark. Uh, the reason this came up by the way, is Steve Trout and Smith tweeted a while ago, uh, that if you look at uh, one of the things that Geekbench does is an LLVM compiler component, basically the, you know Apple's the back end of Apple's compilers. Um, the iPad Pro compiles software faster than the iMac Pro, 
uh, which is <laughs> and it's not it's not by a little bit. The, the scores are ten thousand versus eight thousand nine hundred. Right. So I mean, it's yeah. Anyway, it depends on what you want. <laughs> um, so graphing these things and I, I, graphing the reason you graph things is like uh, you can look at a table of numbers you can compare numbers and you can say well how much bigger is 10,476 than 8,941 you can kind of get a feel better for eyeballing the numbers but uh i certainly and i think most people do better when they see uh, graphics you can see curves you can see trends you can see how things change so the first graph we're going to look at is the geekbench scores for single core and multi-core for a whole bunch of computers like the macbook air the old macbook air uh the old macbook um the the 2018 macbook air and then all of the the, the you know the macbook pro the escape model and the 13 inch and then all the 2018 the 2018 macbook pro and then the ipad so it's got a, basically an apple's entire laptop line a little bit of the past and all of the present uh plus uh the ipad pro and if you look at the single core line because it's a graph that includes both single core and multi-core the single core line sorted from sort of lowest to highest is almost a flat line. It's, you know, at the very low end is the 2017 MacBook Air with whatever score it has. And then, it, you know, it's it's not entirely horizontal, but it goes up a little tiny bit on the right side of the graph. You know, maybe this is like a one degree slope line, right? It's not, it's not, it doesn't go up that much. So like if you're, yes, the, the single core score for the 2.9 gigahertz 2018 uh, i9 15 inch MacBook Pro, it is higher than that. It's like, what is it? Let me look at the actual numbers. It is like 5,800 versus 3,300. But that's not as big a difference as you think it is when you see them graphed, especially when you see all the points in between. But the good thing about it is that the slope, you know, it, there is a nice progression. Each step-up machine does a little bit better than the one before it in single core. When you look at the multi-core line, it kind of follows the same slope until you get halfway through the graph. And once you go from the, the 2018 MacBook Air and you start getting out of the MacBook and MacBook Airs and into the MacBook Pros, suddenly the multi-core line takes a big jump up. And so there's basically the haves and the have-nots in multi-core. It's like, how many cores do you have? If you don't have a lot of cores, your multi-core score is like double your single-core score, and you're just hanging over there. If you have lots of cores, suddenly your multi-core score is like five times as high as your single-core. Um, so if you look at this graph, it's got like a multi-core line that goes, and then just makes a big jump, and then the single-core line is like that. And then... I mean, because the text is really, really small when you look at this in the Google Sheet, you're like, where is the iPad in this graph? The iPad, perhaps surprisingly, perhaps not, if you've heard us rave about it for forever, is in the right-hand side of the graph with the MacBook Pros, right in the middle of the right-hand side of the graph with the MacBook Pros. The only two MacBook Pros that have better single and multi-core scores are the 2018 2.6 GHz 15-inch MacBook Pro and the 2.9 GHz i9 15-inch MacBook Pro. The single-core scores are close, and the multi-core scores are slightly less close. But that's where the iPad Pro is. The iPad Pro is not with the fanless MacBook on the left-hand side. It's not with any of the MacBooks. It's not even with the Escape. It is in a totally different category. So if you had to categorize, hey, what's the iPad Pro like? You're like, it's, it's faster than Apple's low-end laptops. It's faster... Then all of Apple's laptops, except for the two fastest. <laughs> and categorically, you know, it's only got, what is that, six cores or something? Categorically, it's with the Pro model. So seeing that graphically illustrated, seeing, seeing the iPad Pro hiding there amongst the MacBook Pros is kind of startling. Again, remember, this is a machine that's 5.9 millimeters thick and has no fan and runs on a battery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, it's like, and like, it, this, the funny thing is, like, 
you not only have to go to the 15 inch macbook pro but not even the base processor of the 15 inch yeah. can do it like you need to go you need to upgrade the processor from the base model to a more expensive one in order to beat the ipad pro that yeah as you said like costs a lot less even when fully specced up and is you know <laughs> a, like an, a, a 15 watt machine <laughs> So there's one other graph that I think is interesting uh, in the Google Sheet, and that's the price graph. And it's sorted left to right more or less the same as the performance graph, right? It's basically from lower performance to higher performance. But this graph doesn't go in a nice sort of like gradual slope. It goes sort of a steep stair step up, and then it drops back down. And then another steep couple steps, and then drops back down. And then another steep couple steps, then it drops back down. So it's like if if you pick a model... And you start getting the better and better performance. Like, say you pick the 2017 MacBook, right? The the, the 12 inch, the MacBook One. If you buy a low on one of those, you know it's like the second dot on the graph. Like it's way on the left hand side. It's a low performance. But the next three dots on the graph, performance wise, they just barely slope up. But price wise, they go up, 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 and they go really, really high. <laughs> so if you want the top end MacBook One, the top end 12 inch MacBook, it's a pretty high bar. Once you go to the next model, again, this is the next highest performance model. It's faster than the model before. The price goes way down. The base model 2018 MacBook Air, which has better performance than all the ones I just listed over there, suddenly the price drops by hundreds of dollars. But then within the MacBook Air range, well, you don't have much of you don't have any CPU choices there. But like in MacBook Escape, it goes up, up, and then another big drop. And the, the next big drop is the iPad Pro, which is like the lowest bar in the entire <laughs> in the entire chart because it gets to our point that it's a very inexpensive thing. Then you go to the MacBook Pros and you go into the Stratosphere and they're huge and they get bigger and bigger. Uh, I threw in the Mac Minis at the end of this graph too to show where where they end up. They're actually pretty fast, but and they're priced pretty cheaply. But of course, they don't come with a keyboard, a mouse, or a screen. So. You know. Anyway, that, uh, the, the price graph I just thought was interesting to remind you that if you if you decide which model you want based on this performance chart, but then when you go to spec it out, you're like, well, I want the good uh, CPU. Well, I want the big SSD. It's kind of like buying a car where the options are what kill you. Like, if you can get away with the base model or the base config, maybe it's a good deal. But if you find the car you think you want, but then start adding, like, the carbon ceramic brakes and, you know, the luxury package and all that other stuff, like, you end up spending so much money that you could have bought like the e-class instead of the c-class in mercedes part sorry for the car analogies it happens um so so be aware that like and i find myself doing this too like you pick the model you want based on what you think the price performance is like yo this is a great deal for price performance and then you just add options to make it such a worse deal and this is partially apple's fault because they charge so much money for the options like oh you want the big ssd now it costs as much as a macbook pro and you don't notice because you've already picked the model like you've moved on to the configuring phase and then you're just bargaining with yourself well i want it to last a long time 32 gigs of ram will be nice you don't realize <laughs> is that your bargaining voice <laughs> yeah <laughs> you've now entered a different price category so keep that in mind too so anyway if you're interested in spreadsheets and graphs and vague fuzzy geek bench numbers uh we will put the links in the show notes yeah this is why like i i really am very excited and excited for and bullish about a possible arm mac transition because yeah i know it wouldn't be perfect i know there'd be stuff i'd complain about uh but like if they can like the, the performance is already there like in in a much smaller and lower powered chip, the performance is already there to make really compelling Macs using Apple's ARM chips. Like already, and that's Apple's you know five or ten watt ARM chips. If they actually wanted to make like a, a forty watt fifteen inch configuration, 
that could be way faster even than this. And so like it's like people do assume, you know, whenever people try to predict like, oh, what, you know, what would happen in, in an arm transition, they do assume it would it would be like a low end model. And, and I've said before, like, I think they would probably start at the low end to do the transition. You know, they probably start with the MacBook one, but, you know, or, you know, a similar product. But I don't think that they would do that because they don't have the performance headroom. Like, I think they would do it for other, you know, market reasons and practical reasons. But like, clearly, Apple's chip team can deliver this kind of performance. It's, it isn't a question of like, maybe in the future they can do it. it no, they're doing it now. They're already delivering it. Yeah, this is incredible. It, it's, it's just so wild that something that runs, like you guys had said, off of a battery, something that uses almost no power, like one of the, the key pri- priorities when designing the iPad CPU has got to be power consumption. And that's to say very little power consumption, which is... which is the opposite of having high performance. You know, if you're using very little power, you're presumably not going to have high performance. Yet somehow the iPad Pro has its cake and eats it too. And if if power was unhinged, you know, power was no longer a constraint. And and by power, I mean like literally electricity – I, I can't imagine what Apple could do. And and I'm probably oversimplifying and I'm I'm fairly weak on on the intricacies of CPU design, but it just seems like if they can do this much with with so little electricity, how mad and and with so little cooling, imagine what they could do with a fan and with a whole pile of electricity. And I know you guys just said that, but it, it's really worth reiterating that that it, it could be really, really, really impressive. Is it impressive? Is it impressive enough to have, say, you know, emulation that runs at the same speed as an Intel chip? Probably not, but you never know. You never know. I think the cooling is the the big story here because I would imagine uh, for the iPad Pro, and someone should probably test this, but I bet the iPad Pro is a lot like the recent MacBook Pros in that it's designed with the idea that most of the time you're not using all of the cores and all of the GPU all the time. Right, that it's the whole reason it can be so thin and so light, uh, and in fact, the CPU architecture itself is designed this way with the the low power cores and the high power cores. Like they expect most of the time, it's not doing anything too stressful, and when it's not doing anything too stressful, it saves a ton of power by not using the high power cores if it doesn't need to, by using fewer cores. You know, if you were to use it all the time, as Marco experienced when using the you know the recent generation of MacBook Pros, if you really want to stress it and use all the cores and you know, to do some multi-core encoding process or compiling that's parallelized, you will kill your battery, right? So this is not to say that we expect, you know, wow, the, the iPad Pro, it's faster than the, the uh, everything except for the best Mac Pros, and it's so thin, uh, you'd kill that battery in two seconds if you just add, used all the cores all the time. Like, it, it, it is so thin, its battery is so small, there's no magic involved there. It's just that iPads aren't used like that. But the cooling is undeniable because... You can, I think, use the iPad Pro, peg all the cores, and just let it sit there. And it won't melt itself. Like, it will run. And, and will it will it throttle? Will it clock? Like, maybe, you know, down clock itself? Maybe a little bit. But the fact, like, it's got no fan. It has no, you know, significant heat sink or anything to speak of. Like, the back of the device is the heat sink, essentially. If given any kind of reasonable cooling solution, it's got to have so much headroom. Because to get... Similar performance, they have to put two fans in the MacBook Pros, and only two of them are faster, right? 
<laughs> in multi right? So it's it's so far ahead on cooling. And the battery, you know, obviously you can solve that by plugging into a wall and getting a real computer like a desktop. Um, or by just putting way more battery in it, right? So, it, you know, I, I don't... I think the cooling is the, the most impressive thing and the, the thinness and everything like that is just, you know, it's... The, the iPad Pro is not designed to be used by a MacBook Pro, like a MacBook Pro, let's put it that way, which is an interesting constraint because Apple's like, oh, hook it up to a 5K display and do all these fancy pro stuff on it. I think you will really slaughter your battery on your iPad Pro if you do that. But if you have it plugged into a 5K display, hopefully you have some dongle that lets you also connect it to power. And hopefully that dongle can keep up with it because there was situations, I think Marco described these ones, where there's ways you can plug in, was it your iPad or your laptop, where the 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 charger couldn't keep up with the power draw and you'd actually slowly lose battery power was that you talking about that yeah this said this has been a problem with a number of apple high-end products recently like the the 15 inch laptops do it like the biggest devices running the very highest processors when they're stressing both the cpu and the gpu yeah so i imagine an ipad fully loaded driving a 5k display uh with like a a 12 watt charger or something might be in a similar situation but you know, we're, we're looking at these numbers. We're looking at like how well it's doing with so little. Because again, it's it's comparable computer is the MacBook One, and the MacBook One is way on the left side of this chart in a whole different you know neighborhood of performance. That's the <laughs> one with no fan. That's the one you know that that's got the equivalent cooling capacity. Yeah, I got to tell you, and I think I might have said this last week, uh, or I said it somewhere, maybe not on this show, but one way or another. I have found myself using this iPad Pro quite a bit more than I'm using my beloved MacBook One, not only because it's the new Shiny, but because it's just faster. And I know that the MacBook oh, One is slow. That isn't hard. I, yeah, I know, I know. And I know, I know you're being funny, but I know you're also right. I mean, it really isn't hard, and this, these graphs bear it, bear it out. But... In the past, you know, I would I would use my my iMac and it would be fast. You know, this is a fairly old iMac now. It's a 2015, late 2015 iMac, but it's fairly quick even today. And then I would use my MacBook One and think, well, you know, I'm portable now, so it's just not going to be very quick, and that's okay. But now I'm using this iMac Pro and thinking, holy hell, it's both portable and really freaking fast. And I can I've realized I can have the best of both worlds. And so because of that, I found that. I am more apt to use the iPad Pro than the Adorable these days. And my poor Adorable is is almost collecting dust now. It's been quite a 180 from just a few weeks ago. Yeah, I got to say, like like over Thanksgiving, uh, I brought my new iPad Pro, my, you know, the 11-inch. I brought that, and I also brought my 13-inch MacBook Pro. And I didn't use the MacBook Pro at all. I, yeah, same. I only used the iPad and I, I brought it like, you know, because like we like Tiff had to do something with it. And I thought, you know, just in case, maybe I'll get some work done, like some coding work done or, you know, something like that. And first of all, I didn't. <laughs> there was never a good time for that. Um, and so like I just had the iPad and it was great. It was totally fine. It was really nice, actually. Um, and yeah, I, and I, you know, I, I still love the Mac for doing a lot of other stuff. But the iPad Pro was a fantastic only travel computer. And I think in the future I will be more inclined to possibly travel with only it. Yeah, I feel the exact same way. There, It's tough because I feel like, I still feel like I want the parachute of having a, a quote-unquote full or real computer. And I'm sorry, Mike and Federico, I hope you understand the premise of what I'm driving at. But 
ultimately, I really don't think I need to bring a laptop in almost any case. The only thing that I really still feel like I need a laptop for is perhaps dealing with uh, photos coming off an SD card. Because, you know, if I want to do that triage while I'm kind of on the road, I don't have file access and files, so I need to do it on a quote-unquote real computer. But that's the only thing I can think of at this point that I really need a computer for. And even the thing I've been whining about a lot lately, which is my financial management app, I've finally uh, taken the plunge and in, in started using, uh, what is it called, Banktivity? I think that's right. And uh, and that has Mac and iOS apps, and so that problem is now solved as well. And so there's almost nothing that I really need a computer for, uh, a traditional computer for anymore. And that's a weird feeling. It's been a long time since I felt that way. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm mostly finding that like most of the time when I when I'm not at home, I'm not in my office, I'm not at my giant iMac Pro screen, I'm not getting much done on my laptop that I couldn't do on an iPad. Like the only things that I really like that that really you know I can't do without my MacBook if I'm traveling are I do oftentimes get a decent amount of coding work done on long flights, like where I like code a whole feature on a long flight. But I hate every minute of it, and <laughs> it and it it doesn't happen on most of my flights. Like if I'm honest, most of my flights I'm just like you know fussing around on Twitter and stuff. Like that's like that's what I do most of the time. the The times when I'm actually really productive on a flight or on any travel are the exception, not the norm. Uh, and so I don't see any reason to stop bringing my MacBook with me yet because I have it. I might as well keep using it, you know, but if I only had an iPad Pro for my travel needs and I just did all my programming on my desktop Mac, that would be fine because that's actually what happens most of the time anyway. <laughs> yeah, you know, listeners, if you ever want to know when Marco is flying, you know how he occasionally does those like impromptu AMAs? That's when Marco's in a plane. <laughs> <laughs> just let that's your that's your cue that's when it, that's when he's in the air i'm amazed you can get that wi-fi to work not that i use it on planes because all i can do on planes is look out the windows but occasionally i, <laughs> I need to use it in emergency i think i used it once to tweet something at casey or something didn't i it, it certainly doesn't work well and it works better on ios devices than on a mac because like you know macs have all and i know yes i know you run trip mode dutch to fix it but it's <laughs> fine like there's so much stuff on a Mac that just assumes that any connection it gets, it can just monopolize and just suck as much you know bandwidth as it possibly can. And if you get if you try to do that on airplane Wi-Fi, uh, you just get nowhere. Like it just kills the whole connection, and, and nothing get nothing ends up getting through to your computer. So like iOS is much better at managing that uh, than, than Mac OS is. Um, so it's just it's it's actually a very nice like low connectivity or bad connectivity operating system because all the and all the apps tend to manage it pretty well too because they're all written for cellular iPhones and everything so it's just it's nicer we are brought to you this week by Jamf now start securing your business today and manage your first three devices for free at jamf.com slash ATP now it's easy to keep track of your own Mac iPad and iPhone but what about the other Apple devices that you manage for your business 
As a business grows, so does its digital inventory, making it harder to manage everyone's Apple devices. And this is especially true if you have remote employees. Jamf Now, that's J-A-M-F Now, makes it easy to set up, manage, and protect your Apple devices at work. You can check your digital inventory, distribute Wi-Fi and email settings, deploy apps remotely, enforce passcode requirements, protect your company data, and even lock or wipe a device if necessary from anywhere. Jamf Now helps you manage your devices at work so you can focus on your business instead. And it's super easy to use with no IT experience necessary. Listeners can start securing your business today by managing your first three devices for free. After that, you can have more starting at $2 per month per device. So create your free account today at jamf.com slash ATP. That's J-A-M-F dot com slash ATP. And you can secure your business today. Thank you so much to Jamf Now for sponsoring our show. Before we get off this hardware topic, there's another subtopic that, again, this is mostly old news, but it's worth reflecting on now that we just talked about the uh, the, the performance of Apple's various portable products. And as it relates to the price, you know, the iPad Pro being you know, amazing performance for, you know, very, very tiny price compared to its contemporaries in the in the chart of Geekbench scores anyway. Um, and that is about something we've talked about many times in the past. The price increases of Apple's product lines in recent years. Uh, Rodrigo Arojo uh, put up some numbers to it in what I think is a tweet that we'll link to. And percentage increases, again, because if you just look at the absolute value, it's hard to know exactly what they're doing. But so the MacBook Air, the Mac Mini, the iPad Pro, uh, the small and the big iPad Pro, all saw price increases for like, what's the minimum cost you can get into this model? Obviously, the new models are better than the old models, right? So it's not the same product, right? But... Well, th- see, that's BS. Like, <laughs> there's there's a number of good reasons and bad reasons why, and you know, some of them are valid, some of them aren't. But the, but like, if you say like, well, we c- this should be priced higher because it's better than the old model. That's not how the technology business works. The t- technology business makes makes better things available all the time at the same prices or less than the previous models. So you know, the fact that it's better, yeah, it's better because it's newer. It's using newer technology. That doesn't mean it has to be more expensive. Well, but I'm bringing it up for two reasons. One, for things like the Mac Mini, which was just super ancient, because it's like, well, that's not just like a year increase, right? It's it's significantly better. And the second reason I'll get to in a second, but just to, to get the percentage numbers here. So the MacBook Air, you know, we have a modern MacBook Air. The Mac, old MacBook Air was very old and arguably was a lower-end product. That is a 20% price increase. The Mac Mini, uh, 60% price increase, but that thing had been left alone for years and years. The small iPad Pro, 23% increase, and the big iPad Pro, 25% increase. Increase, uh, Especially for the iPads, like, that's not that old of a product. Like, the 10.5-inch the and 12.9-inch were, like, last year's models, right? So a 20% increase uh, in a year, which is what all the non-Mac Mini models are hovering around, 20% increase, that's big. And this is not just, like, what the high-end costs. This is, like, the, the baseline. Like, it's a reasonable machine. It's probably got not as much storage as you want and doesn't have the fanciest anything. But, like, that's the bottom level price. And this is what we've been talking about, that almost everything that Apple's come out with, whether it's a little tiny white cube that charges your device or a cover or the actual products, you know, it extends to pretty much every product line. The, the new ones that replace the old ones are not just like 10 bucks more expensive or like 1% more expensive or 3% more expensive, but big, big jumps. Sometimes they're explained by like, well, but the iPhone 10, it's, it's so fancy and it's got this face thing and it's the first one of its kind or whatever, but that price increase didn't go away. 
when when you know when it became commonplace like it, 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 the price increases i think are significant um and we've been complaining about it because we feel like apple's you know testing the limits of whatever the term is price elasticity like how much you know this is supply and demand we have a product you want if we keep increasing the price, presumably fewer of you will buy it. But how many fewer? And is it fewer enough to make up for the price difference? I'm sure there's economics terms that have to apply to this, but Apple has been turning that dial. And as I've said in the past, it's kind of terrifying to think about how much they could turn that dial. Like, is there a point where, oh, we've turned it too much? Now the MacBook Air costs $10 million and only one person buys one and we're not making it up in volume, right? And so, like, there is a, obviously a limit, but they're testing the limits. And so far, their experiments have been pretty successful in that, like the number of iPhones they sold didn't go down. And like that, that's the whole thing. They're trying to not even report unit sales anymore. Like the unit sales are like flat or maybe a little bit down, but the price increased so much that both revenue and profit are up. Um, the, the one, and, and you know, we've talked this to death before, but the one subtle point I want to add in here is there, this isn't, doesn't explain or excuse Apple's prices, but it is something to keep in mind that I think consumers of all kinds don't keep in mind that i'm reminded of every time i look at like game consoles from the past because game consoles expend much farther back than like the macbook airline um you get used to buying things for a certain price like a cheap laptop right a cheap mac all right qualify a cheap mac laptop a thousand dollars right obviously cheap pc laptops are like 99 bucks whatever but a mac laptop like when they around a thousand dollars there haven't ever been a lot of mac laptops that have been cheaper than a thousand dollars if anyone that breaks down into three digits like 999 dollars or whatever like the macbook air was like that's pretty much the floor or take something as simple as like a little white cube that plugs into the wall that charges stuff like how much does a charger cost from apple obviously the price you know they're not cheap right but whatever the price is whether it's 29 dollars or you know 49 or whatever or a lightning cable or a charging cable a usb a, a cable that i plug into something to charge my phone that costs like 1995 or whatever if you've been an apple customer or any kind of customer for a long time you start getting used to whatever that price is and you just say that's the price of this thing a usb charging cable is 1995 and if you're an Apple customer for 15 years, you're like, uh, USB charging cable should be 1995. And 15 years later, you're like, this cable should be 1995. In 15 years, inflation becomes a factor. If the price of the thing you're buying literally never changes, it's getting cheaper over time. Now, obviously, Apple's got the headroom to make it true. I'm not going to argue like Apple shouldn't do this or can't do this or whatever. But in the realm of game consoles, it's interesting to consider because you might say, well, game consoles should be 299 the Atari 2600, I don't, that's not true, but it, you know, it was 299 and the PlayStation was 299 and the GameCube is 299 These are all not real prices. But like, uh, like you can, you start getting the idea that whenever I buy a game console, I bought a game console when I was 10 and I had a paper route and it was 299 And now when I buy the PlayStation 5, it should be 299 299 in 2020 dollars when the PlayStation 5 comes out or whatever is not the same as 299 in 1978 dollars. Do the math to figure out how much did that Atari console cost in 2020 dollars. And you'll find out it was like $800. <laughs> but you just get it into your head like the price should be $299 forever. So what it means is your current game console, your PlayStation 5, is way cheaper than your Atari game console from the you know 70s or 80s was, right? Way cheaper, like four times cheaper. And as Marco pointed out, it's the mark of technology and progress or whatever. And the reason I bring this up for Apple is because until recently in the Tim Cook era, Apple had a thing where they never wanted to change their prices and kept them with, you know, within a product line 
pretty constant. And if that product line lasts for 10 years, the product actually was getting cheaper, even though Apple, quote unquote, never changed the price just due to inflation. And again, I don't say this excuses or, or explains any of the huge price increases that we're getting here. But if Apple literally never increased the prices, they would essentially be slowly eroding their traditional, very large, healthy Apple margins. So what I would expect instead of what we're seeing, if Apple was to say, we're happy with our margins the way we are and we don't think we can wring any more money out of the customer base, is that the price of Apple's products would increase slowly over time tracking inflation, which would show up in sort of non-round numbers and you wouldn't always be 499 for like the entry-level Mac Mini or something and it would be like, it would have to go to like 510 and 520 and weird numbers like that that aren't good for marketing purposes and stuff like that. Or they can keep it as 499 for like five years and then to the second five years make it like, you know, four, you know, 549 or like do like step jumps instead of tracking it exactly. You might think, oh, I, I, they must have kept the prices of these the same for 20 years and now they have to make a 20% jump. That's not true. They haven't done, they haven't done that. It doesn't excuse or explain it. But I, you know, this is a strange and subtle point to bring up here. I do want to point out to people that if a price, the price of something never changes in terms of the number that's on the price tag, it actually is going down in price over time. And if you, if you don't think about that and you live for a real long time, you realize the thing you're paying the quote unquote same amount for is actually getting cheaper. It sure doesn't feel it though. That's the thing. Like I agree with everything you just said. Obviously you're right, but it doesn't feel it. I mean, well, it's I, not true for the Apple products aren't doing that. Like we ha- inflation has not gone up 20% since last year. Like just <laughs> yeah, 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 and, and they are not like, and uh, Apple's margins are so healthy to begin with. Like they're, what they're doing is seeing how much money they can get out of it. But for, for certain kind of sort of commodity stuff, I am aware that I shouldn't expect that whatever it is, a USB cable will be 1995 uh, when I'm 80 years old. Like it won't be, it will be more expensive if, if it was the Apple is still around and they have their martyrs, because if it's still 1995, Apple has become mono price. Like <laughs> that's not going to happen, right? <laughs> they, Apple has to increase the prices of their things at some point. They just don't have to do it 20% every year. Yeah. I mean, yeah. There, there's a lot of factors that going on here with Apple's pricing, there's a lot of excuses people can make and some of them are valid or partly valid. You know, like one excuse is, you know, they, sometimes they do actually need to raise the price for newer components if they just have, you know, higher costs than before. That's not usually the case, but sometimes it is. So, okay. Um, sometimes, you know, they have to adjust for, you know, new foreign currency rates when, you know, like the pricing in, if we think the pricing in the U.S. is bad, you should see the pricing in other countries right now. It's way yeah. worse everywhere else. We, we, it's better when there are U.S. companies, so our fluctuations are explicable to us, but the fluctuations right. due to exchange rates are just not explicable. And with all these things, it's like, why doesn't Apple just eat the cost? It's like, well, they didn't get to be the richest company in the world by eating the cost. That's not how business <laughs> works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, like, so, you know, part of it is, is you know, currency fluctuations, economic things like, you know, trying to forecast future currency fluctuations because they tend to want to leave prices where they are for a product's entire cycle. So, like, it, you know, if they want to sell this iPad, say, you know, in it, it, when, they're, when they're setting prices in, like, you know, Europe, then they set a certain euro price. Uh, and they, you know, But they have to also predict, like, what's the economy going to be doing in these areas over the next you know year and a half or two years that we're going to be selling this product and so will this price still be okay for our margins and everything with whatever is expected to go on in the economy of this country over the next year and a half you know so like they 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 build in some tolerance there there's you know various issues of taxation in different countries and everything but like 
there's also, you know, people, people have said like, oh, component costs are rising all over the industry. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes like, you know, DRAM gets, you know, short supplied or like an earthquake hits a factory somewhere and, and you know, production's down or something or there's just, you know, huge demand from crypto coin miners for GPUs or whatever. Like there are factors that do affect pricing across the whole industry. There is the current U.S. situation of these crazy, uh, you know, tariff proposals and and weird protectionism things that we're trying to do that will destroy our economy. Um, and so they have to consider that and, and what that's going to do to their margins and, and how that's going to affect them. But none of that actually accounts for the entirety of Apple's price increases over the last few years. It's really simple. Apple needs growth. Their core businesses and core profit centers have not been delivering like new customer growth or unit sales growth at the rates they used to. And so in you know with that slowing down, Apple now needs to extract more money out of its existing customers. Like, and and this is this is a pattern across all Apple product lines, uh, across their services as well as their hardware. Uh, Apple is just turning the screws, cranking it down, making getting more money out of everybody, and that's going to only continue. They are now in a position, with, you know, with their finances, with their sales, with their revenue growth, with their stock, that they have to just keep cranking they have to keep making more money out of each customer and they're going to keep turning these dials for the foreseeable future they're really good at it tim cook is really good at it he's really stingy and he knows that we're going to pay whatever whatever they ask you know like whatever pricing they ask yeah raise the prices 25 percent in one year and look we all bought it anyway right like it's you know all the accessories are more expensive all the you know the the cables and everything they're all expensive like that's Less not going to stop. The box, so they can remove yeah. all the optional dongles and remove right. the cables. Like, are you, what are you going to do? Not buy the Mac because we don't include the cable? No, you still buy it. Right, exactly. And every one of those things, they can point to some rational reason that's not just we, we want to make more, more money from you. Like, you know, you not can, everybody uses that cable and the packaging right. is smaller and we save our carbon footprint. Like, there's all sorts of reasons. Yeah, exactly. There's all sorts of reasons. And those are all partly true. Like, yeah, it is kind of, you know, environmentally unfriendly to ship a cable in the box that most people are going to throw away. Yeah, that that's true. But that's not most of the reason. You know, most of the reason is this will make us more money and we we need to find ways to make more money from everybody. Like, that's it. That's the reason. Everything else is an excuse, not a reason. And it's not going to stop. Like, this is this is just new Apple. This is what we have in Apple for the foreseeable future is they are basically going to just keep extracting more from us. They're, they're, you know, basically like rent seeking. They're, they're just in cut, like just whatever they can get to extract more out of us. They're going to turn that dial because that's what they have to do for their stock growth and whatever stuff that, that we don't care about, but that becomes our problem very quickly. And this is not actually like, uh, Oh, it's a thing they just discovered and thought they'd try to do. It's when the growth slowed and stopped that they turn to this when growth is going on they might be scared to do this was like don't do anything to mess up the growth like when the iphone growth curve was going up up and they kept selling more and more phones every year you know we sold so many more phones than we sold this year than next year you're kind of wary of like someone might say i bet we get more money so it's like don't don't do anything that might mess up the growth so increasing prices might slow the growth and oh, yeah. the growth everybody that, loves the growth right that, so it's only the way, when the growth stops. that is the reason if anybody out there is ever upset why their favorite VC-funded company 
is not charging money for anything. And they're like, please charge me money for something so I know you can be sustainable. I, I want to, you know, give get a business model, whatever. Like, let me support you so that you don't, you know, so you won't flame out and sell or whatever. The VC VC funded companies don't want to impede growth at any cost. They know that if they can keep growth up, they can raise more money when they run out at better terms and better terms and better terms. So the reason why VC back you know startups don't charge for anything is because it would slow down growth. And that's the la- if they slow down growth, they're dead. They can't raise any more money if their growth goes away and their company crumbles because it was never sustainable to begin with. Like that's why they do that. You know, people often, you know, uh, commentators are often like, oh, well, I, you know, this is dumb. You should be charging money for this. I, I know I was there. I was one of those people. But like, yeah, the reality is like growth is everything as long as you can get it. But as as you're saying, John, like when you're Apple and you sold like billions and billions of phones and made billions and billions of dollars, like at some point you start reaching saturation levels in some of these markets and the growth slows down and then you have to transition to making more from each customer through various ways. Yeah. So the, the obvious, you know, other strategy that Apple has turned to at various times, like, well, you need something to get the growth back, right? So right now you're doing this thing, which is like, make yourself more money from the customers you have, but how are you going to get the growth back? And we've got the whole services story and yada, yada. Uh, But also one possible strategy, if you just set aside the services thing, it's like, okay, well, if you're not getting any more growth, like we know you're not the majority of the market, like Android, it still sells so many more phones than you, uh, you know, as a collective, right? Um, you could get more growth, perhaps, by going into lower end markets, sell more cheaper products instead of your current high end ones. And Apple has done that with the Mac in the past, it's kind of dabbled in doing that with the laptops at various times. Um, phones, not really that much, but like, that's not Apple. Like Apple doesn't want to get into that cycle where the only way they think they can find more growth is by selling cheaper and cheaper phones and trying to essentially compete with Android for the low end of the market. Apple always wants the most profitable section of the market, which it basically has with the iPhone. Just turns out the most profitable section of the market is whatever percentage they have worldwide, like twenty percent or whatever they're at, and you know much more in 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 the U.S. than uh, than outside the U.S. Uh, but thus far, they have you know they've not said let's reignite the growth of the iPhone by expanding the people who we can sell to. There's tons of people who just won't buy an iPhone because it's too damn expensive, right? Obviously, by raising the prices of the iPhone, they're not addressing that market in any way whatsoever. (laughs) They're just testing, like, that market that we have, how much more money do those people have, right? Which is a viable strategy. But another strategy is, if we sold a cheaper phone, could we start eating away and and instead of being at 80% Android, 20% Apple, do 75-25? Like, can 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 we start getting growth back? The answer is probably you can't get that much more growth back because at a certain point, you're, either gonna, you're not going to wipe Android off the face of the map. And if you want to compete with them at price for real, you're going to have to sell some really cheap phones that wouldn't be up to Apple standards and you have the, you know, the image and so on and so forth. So, you know, the, the real growth that Apple is looking for, I'm sure, is going to come from like, you know, AR goggles or whatever, like new product category. Like potentially it could have been the watch, but so far it hasn't been. But just as the iPod is the thing that kickstarted Apple's growth. It wasn't like finding a way to sell more Macs, right? It, you know, it wasn't a low-end Mac that could suddenly compete with PCs. Like it was the iPod. And what's the thing that gave them the next growth spurt? It was the iPhone. It wasn't a way to sell even cheaper and cheaper iPods. At the end, iPods. I should have thought of that. That was the market they went down to. At the end, you could buy an iPod Shuffle for like fifty bucks, which is incredibly low-end for anything Apple sells. Like you can't even get a power adapter for that price for the for the big laptops anymore. Like it was. They, they pursued the iPod strategy down to the point where basically, you know, if you can afford 
any kind of digital music player, you can afford an iPod because we sell one for $49 and maybe you can find it on sale, right? So they, and they, you know, they saturated the digital music player market. They had more than 20% of the digital music player market. With the phone so far, they haven't been willing to do that. And I would argue even the lowest end iPod was still a pretty good music player. The buttonless shuffle aside, which was a little bit, hmm, the, the the shuffles with the buttons, I used them for years and I thought they were, they were a pretty good iPod, all things considered. They sucked. No, I, I mean, I, I liked, I could use the buttons with feeling them with just my fingers. They clipped onto your clothes. They sounded fine. You know, I, I liked them just fine. Anyway, um, I should have thought as an example of where they've gone downscale, but they don't, it doesn't look like they're going to do that with the phone. So I think what Apple is doing is rapidly trying to find whatever the next growth thing is, whether it's going to be, you know, a new car or you know apple ar glasses or you know whatever else like a new thing a new product category that will be their next growth vector but in the meantime their strategy with the phone so far and with all their products really seems to be see how much money we can extract from the people who are already buying it don't pursue the low end in any of our product lines like the 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 macs are moving farther from the low end the phones are also moving farther from the low end and the mac pro is certainly not going to help them there as much as i wanted to come um and then do the whole services thing, which we don't have time to talk about it. But uh, Ben Thompson had a really good uh, a story about that. that. Maybe we'll link it in the show notes and everyone can read it and we can talk about it in a future show if we want. But I feel like we'd just be repeating what's in what's in his uh, his article. And I think he covered those spaces pretty well. The, the thing he brings up, which we don't, I also don't have time to discuss today, is what this could do to Apple's strategy. If you keep pursuing this strategy, does it change the nature of the company? Do you eventually lose the things that make Apple Apple if you keep pursuing the strategy of putting less and less stuff in the box and charging higher and higher prices and not pursuing the low end at all. And I, I agree that uh, you do lose some of the characters that made Apple Apple, and that's why we're all hoping that Apple can figure out what the next big thing is uh, sooner or later. If it's not going to be Project Titan, then it better be those stupid AR glasses. <laughs> so I was looking through my old Apple receipts and I found from around this time in 2013, so this is five years ago, I ordered an iPad mini with retina display, Wi-Fi and cellular, on, on, uh, with 32 gigs. It was $629, and I got a smart cover that was 40 bucks. So all in, I spent, with tax, $703.40. And I got myself an iPad with a cover. Now, I understand that that was an iPad mini. I understand that it was a long time ago. But for $703.40, I got myself an iPad mini and a cover. No keyboard, no pencil, but an iPad mini with cellular and a cover. I don't have my, my receipt from a couple of weeks ago in front of me, but to the best of my recollection, I spent $1,300 on an iPad Pro <laughs> and a keyboard. So I spent nearly twice as much money for an 11-inch iPad Pro 256 with a keyboard. Again, I recognize they are different products at different price points, but it's hard to, to, to remind me, my, my heart, if you will, you know, my brain understands that this is a different product and it's been five years. But to me, five years ago, I bought an iPad for 700 bucks and five weeks ago, or not even, I bought an iPad for $1,300. And that's almost two times what I paid five years ago. But I got the same thing on the other end, right? I still just got an iPad, right? Again, I recognize it's not that simple, but that's kind of what it feels like. And I think that's 
that feeling is why a lot of people are getting a little bit grumbly. And yeah, I understand that the keyboard is way more complex than the little floppy cover that came on the original iPad mini with Retina. It's it's a lot more complex. And I understand that a pencil is more complex, although I didn't order a pencil. So that would have been $1,500 had I ordered a pencil or whatever. Um, but I mean, regular people are noticing these things. Like my dad is is a pretty big geek, but he doesn't follow this stuff like I do. And he said to me when he was buying his computer, holy hell, this is really expensive. And I don't remember exactly how much he paid. And admittedly, he had loaded it up pretty well, including a one terabyte drive, which is not cheap. But still, he said, holy smokes, I don't know if I want to spend all this money on a computer. And I think that a lot of regular people are noticing this and getting a little turned off by it. I think of that when I see that uh, my children have already nicked my $2,000 MacBook Air. Oh. <laughs> already. <laughs> That's how long it lasted. You stopped the clock, yes. The the aluminum, these presumably sturdy aluminum case has already been damaged. by. I, I don't know what, it must have been another piece of metal because it's like you can feel it with your finger. Like it's <laughs> jagged. You can see it. Uh, it like the, the edge. They, ugh. Well, they, I think one of them told me uh, the Chromebooks at school uh, – don't have any nicks on them, but all the, the corners of all the Apple laptops are dented at school. <laughs> so that argues for Apple to make a, an unapologetically plastic MacBook. We are sponsored this week by Linode. Instantly deploy and manage an SSD server in the Linode cloud. You can get a server running in seconds with your choice of Linux distro, resources, location, and so much more. Go to linode.com ATP and use promo code ATP for a $20 credit. Now, I host all my server stuff at Linode. I've used a lot of web hosts over the years. For you know, I've hosted web apps for a long time, so I've, I've bought a lot of VPSs and dedicated servers and everything, and Linode is just by far my favorite web host. It's so easy to use the control panel. It's super nice. It's highly functional. There's all sorts of stuff you can do very, very easily, all with Linode. They have great support if you ever need it, and the documentation is strong, and this, the hardware is great. This is native SSD, enterprise-grade SSDs, 40 gigabit network behind it all, Z on E5 processors. And one of my favorite things about Linode is it's an incredibly good value. So plans start at just $5 a month. This gets you a Linode VPS with one gig of RAM. They have all sorts of plans above that, depending on what your needs are, and they're all incredible values. This is the best value I have found consistently in the web hosting business. Anytime I look at anywhere else, Linode beats them. It's it's just that good. It's that good of a value. And I've used it for a long time. There's there's no catch. It's it's just really a very good host. Um, you can check it out yourself at linode.com slash ATP. Or if you're maybe interested in working for Linode, if you're in that field, you can go to linode.com slash careers because they are hiring. So check out Linode today, linode.com slash ATP for my absolute favorite web host. If you need to host servers or VPSs or whatever you call them these days, you need Linode. Go to linode.com slash ATP, promo code ATP2018 for a $20 credit because on that $5 a month plan, that could be four months for free. Once again, linode.com slash ATP, promo code ATP2018. Thank you so much to Linode for hosting all my stuff and for sponsoring our show. Let's do some Ask ATP, and let's start tonight with Angelo Fiorentino, uh, who coincidentally, uh, as this episode will be released, uh, I guested on Angelo's podcast, uh, Double Density, uh, this week, so you can check that out. We'll put a link in the show notes. But anyway, uh, I did not add this to the show notes, so we are uh, we have our journalistic integrity intact. Uh, but somebody else added the following question from Angelo. What are your thoughts on shutting down sleeping or always running your Mac? Is there actually a right answer? Does it really just matter, depending on your use case? 
Uh, for me, I leave my iMac on pretty much always. It's probably been off a total of three hours in like the three years that I've owned it. Um, I leave it running pretty much all the time. I don't probably need to, but because I uh, serve several things off of this, including Plex and include and, and a couple other things, I like to just always have it on. I personally am of the opinion that now that I don't have a spinning disc in this thing, that there's arguably no reason to really turn it on and off, but I am anxious to hear the two of you correct me. So let's start with Marco. Marco, what do you do? Um, for, you know, laptops, obviously I, I, you know, put them in my bag oh, and sure, totally. yeah. mm-hmm. for desktops, uh, I, I leave my, my laptop or my desktop on all the time. I have the screen go to sleep after a certain, I, you know, after like yep, 15 yep, minutes yep. or something like that, but otherwise it's on all the time. Um, if you run a laptop like a desktop where it's like open all the time, I'm not sure I would go for that, uh, because, Laptops have you know very different thermal environments. They're not made to be run twenty four seven. You can, and many people do, and it might be okay. Although I would suggest that if you're actually running a laptop twenty four seven, maybe that should be a desktop instead of a laptop. <laughs> you're never likely to bring it anywhere. <laughs> uh, but you know, you you can do it. I, I I don't recommend it for laptops. For desktops, they are made for that. Over the years, ever since you know the, the dawn of home computing. There have been lots of, you know, myths and possibly true myths. I don't know about about whether you should do this or not. One of them is like, oh well, if you if you turn on and off the hard drive a lot, power cycling the hard drive will wear it out faster. And maybe that was true. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But these days, you don't have a lot of hard drives and desktops anymore. If the only thing that you're like power cycling is the fan and everything else is a non-moving part, uh, I can't imagine that's going to make that big of a difference. So ultimately what you're probably looking at here is like convenience versus energy usage. The energy usage is probably the biggest one. Like, you know, it, again, this is like, <laughs> there, there've been a lot of myths about this over time too. Like it takes more energy to light up, to, to, to turn the light on than it does to keep it on. And it's like, no, it, it doesn't. <laughs> and so like, it doesn't take more energy to boot your computer than it does to keep it running for a long time. Uh, so if, in the interest of, if you, if you're looking for the most responsible thing to do, it's to put it to sleep because the energy usage will be substantially reduced and, and, you know, the world could use more energy consumption reduction. So the most responsible thing to do is to put it to sleep when it's not in use. I don't do that because I don't know, I guess I'm selfish or lazy or it's old habit from forever ago, but, uh, I just leave mine running and I, I, I don't know. I drive an electric car. (laughs) That's your carbon offset. Yeah. I don't know. John, what's the right answer? So I put this question in here, even though I know we've actually answered this question before, because I think there are certain categories of questions that it's worth us answering again and again, because they're they're common questions and, you know, people don't listen to every episode. Maybe someone started listening. I think it's worthwhile, even though I'm 99% sure we've answered this exact question before. So I'm surprised neither one of you remembered that, but, but I think we did. Anyway. Both of you, or particularly Marco, are undercutting what I wanted to say about this question. And the reason, the main reason I put it in here is not because there's some super-duper right answer, but because I want to argue against the, the instinct I see to people who are, I mean, they're probably not listening to this podcast, honestly, but people who aren't super into technology, their instinct, especially older people, is to treat technology like a light. When you're not using it, you turn it off. It's just a sensible thing to do. No one's in the room. Turn off the lights. Everybody knows that, right? 
And the most extreme version of this, which I think I've described in the program before, are people who, when they're done checking their email or checking Twitter on their phone, shut it down. Like, hold down <laughs> the power button, wait for the big slider to come up, and slide the big red slider. And the next time they want to send a text message or, you know, read their email or whatever, they boot their phone. White Apple logo appears, they wait, they wait, they wait, they wait. It boots, they enter their passcode or whatever, and they check their email. I hope everyone listening to this program knows that's not the right way to use an iPhone. You can do it, and you might be like, I'm saving battery power, and this, I think, is actually a case where actually it does take more battery power to boot an iPhone from cold and shut it down again than it, than it would take if you, if you left it on. Um, I'm using this as an example of, A, it's a real thing that people do. I've seen it with my own eyes, and I have failed in person to tell people not to, to successfully convince people not to do it. It's a surprisingly hard thing to do if you're talking to someone who's not in technology. Try to convince somebody who like I just just the way I like to use my phone. Try convincing them not to do it. I mean, so whatever, it's their phone. They can do what they want. But anyway, I'm using this example uh, where it seems extreme, mostly to talk to the people who either don't realize or have habits that are formed in error when Max didn't have essentially sleep like all Macs these days can sleep it's not the same as turning them off but it's also not the same as leaving them on all the time either so for people who are still in the lifestyle where they sit down in their computer boot it use it and shut it down i would suggest to them to try the sleeping lifestyle which again is not the same <laughs> as leaving it on all the time and by the way if you even when you shut it down you still have parasitic power losses to the power supplies and stuff like that so Unless you unplug it from the wall, you're not actually using zero power. At when a computer is sleeping, whether it's a laptop or a desktop, no, it doesn't use as little power as when it's turned off. Uh, but it does use way less power than it being powered up. And modern Macs have a feature that will let them, like Power Nap or whatever, that will let them kind of wake briefly without turning on any of the fans and do stuff like check your email or do time machine backups or whatever. You can disable that if you want to save more energy. But what I'm saying is that if you're not in the sleeping Mac lifestyle, try it because having a Mac that basically puts itself to sleep after it hasn't been used for five minutes frees you from having to remember to shut it down, frees you from having to wait for it to boot up. And for the most part is the same experience as if it was on all the time because you come to it and you hit a key and it should, if you have a decent computer spring to life and let you start using it immediately. So there shouldn't be any long wait, certainly less time than booting. And if you have power nap and stuff enabled, like if it's, a, if it's something that's plugged into the wall and you can leave all that stuff enabled, it will have done stuff in the background usefully and your email should be there and maybe your Twitter client got a chance to check something or whatever. Like it's not it's not the best in the world. Like you might still have to do stuff when it wakes in your sleep. But, but please, everybody, consider sleeping your Mac and do not turn off your phone when you're done using it and turn it back and reboot it because that's, <laughs> that's crazy dog. I, I don't consider shutting down your Mac at the end of the day to be that ridiculous, but I would consider... Oh, I sit down on my Mac and I boot it. I check my email and then I shut it down. And then 20 minutes later, I come back. I want to check my email again. I boot it, check my email and shut it down. Like, don't do that. If you're going to be the person who shuts down your computer, say, boot it in the morning and shut it down in the afternoon or night or whatever. Don't boot, shut down, boot, shut down, boot, shut down, boot, shut down, because that's not making anybody's life better. But overall, I would say consider sleeping. My And personally, if you want to know what I do, uh, none of my Macs ever get turned off unless we go on vacation, but they sleep. They all sleep. Paul Walker writes, I would love to understand your photography workflow. How do you import photos from your DSLR? Where do you edit them? How do you organize them for archive and sharing? And what apps do you use? Speaking of things that we have covered before, but it is worth repeating. 
Uh, I don't know if I have the most or least complex workflow, but for me, I uh, will go through using Finder. Uh, I will insert the SD card for my camera. I will use Finder to page through them, which I know John was probably screaming right now. Uh, but I will use Finder to go through them and delete any of the raw files that I don't think are pretty much uh, stellar. I will delete any of the JPEGs that are not at least decent. And then I wrote an app, I think it was over my uh, paternity leave with Michaela. I wrote a, a Mac OS app that will basically inspect each of those files, um, figure out when they were taken, and then rename them to be uh, the, the date and time they were taken and stuff them into a directory, uh, into a directory structure that I was alluding to early this episode. So, for example, a picture taken today would go into 2018 slash 11, and then the name of the file would be 2018 uh, hyphen 11 hyphen 27. Uh, and then a space, and then, you know, whatever time it was taken. Oh, I forgot a step uh, before I suck everything in, and those all end up on the Synology, by the way. I also use the app uh, Geotag, which is free. It's not great, uh, but it does the job. Uh, and what that lets me do is geotag the photos. So things that are coming off my iPhone, obviously, are already geotagged, but things coming off my uh, Micro Four Thirds camera, not always the case. I have to basically tell, I have to use an app to track my location and then upload them to the camera. It's a big pain in the butt. So uh, generally speaking, I'll use geotag to geotag them because it is not unusual for me to want to look up pictures by location they were taken. Uh, and that's most of it. As of as you've heard recently, I use Google Photos somewhat begrudgingly. I'll probably end up trying Apple Photos sooner rather than later. Um, and that's basically it. Marco, I think you might be next in line in terms of fiddliness. So would you mind going next and telling me about your your workflow? Sure. Uh, well, do you want to know what I ideally think I do <laughs> or what I actually do? Uh, yes. How about both? What I tell myself I do is that I, you know, my iPhone photos just get just, you know, I, I take photos in the camera app and they go in iCloud photo library. So that's, that's easy. Um, my fancy camera photos, which honestly I don't take very many of, but my fancy camera photos, uh, I usually will import those into Lightroom first. And the idea is to pick through them, process the ones I decide to keep, and then export the final JPEGs to Apple photo library. What actually happens in practice with this system is I don't take very many photos with my big camera. When I do import them into Lightroom, they mostly just sit there. I might process one that I want to post to Instagram or something. Uh, and then the rest, I'm like, I'll deal with this later. <laughs> then I usually don't. So I end up having a whole bunch of like, unprocessed, unpicked through, unfiltered Lightroom collections with some of them being copied into photos. So I have these like kind of two parallel libraries with the Lightroom one being really kind of, you know, half butted. And I have gone through over time and sometimes like there was, there was a period of a few years where I only used Lightroom. And I think when I moved to Apple photos, I think I copied those photos all into iCloud photo library but sometimes I just can't find a photo that I'm pretty sure I had at some point. And so I think maybe I didn't import them all. Maybe there's something still in, in an old Lightroom library. And I've gone through multiple Lightroom libraries over the years too. So like basically in practice, my system's a total mess. And it's 
it's just like I'm, I'm sure I'm wasting tons of disk space on duplicating photos between the two programs or between multiple Lightroom libraries or who knows what. And it's just not it's not the best system in the world. You're giving me stress just hearing this <laughs> description. Like I am stressed out right now just listening to this. Oh, my word. John, bring us back around. Well, a question for both of you before we move on. What do you do with your respective spouse's photos? So your spouses have phones. They take photos with their phones. Uh, and Tiff has fancy cameras. She takes photos with those. I don't know if Aaron has her own fancy camera. What do you do with those pictures? Uh, for us, uh, on the 15th or thereabouts of every month, I steal her phone for like an hour and I import them using the same basic process. I'll suck them into photos. I'll, I'll make a photos library. You know, I don't typically keep a photos library around. I will make one, suck all the pictures in because when you use photos, it comes in as heek or heef, whatever the hell it's called. Uh, and, you know, whatever the native formats are. And then I'll use my little app to relocate them to the Synology. And then on the, th- on the, on the first of the month, I do the same process with my phone. Wait, wait, wait. You relocate them from out of the photos library? Correct. Because I don't use photos for anything. My phone, I, don't, I don't have your, a photos your library. System, for all of Marco's mess, your system is insane, Casey. <laughs> well, no, no, but the thing <laughs> it is, is that I know exactly where all of my pictures are. They're in that folder structure in the Synology. Yeah, I, I know, but like, but it's quite a Rube Goldberg. Anyway, continue. All right, so you guys so, them off her phone, right? Right, and, so, yeah. so I take, I, I, in the case of her phone, I will take, you know, the most recent month or so worth of, worth of pictures. I will suck them into the Synology, and then I will delete two months ago. So she always has a month's worth of pictures on her phone because more often than you not... You delete them off her phone? Hell yeah, why wouldn't I? And from her iCloud photo library? Yeah, wait a minute. Does she not use iCloud photo library? No, none of, neither of us use iCloud photo library. So that when they're on her phone, that's the only place they are? Yeah, but they're only for a, ever, month? Th- for a month, yeah. That's bad. Well, but I mean, to be honest, it's it's it, for either of our phones, it is very rare that there is something that is taken that we really and truly cherish. And if there is something that we've taken that we really and truly cherish, then it gets immediately sent to, to each other. And so there'll be, there'll be a record of it in like an iMessage or something like that. But your point... You still sign up for iCloud Photo Library for the, for, for the phones. It's cheap and it's reasonable. Well, we have, we have Photo Stream. So remember that that's still a thing. So the most the uh, recent thousand pictures yeah, or whatever yeah. are, are also in the iCloud. But, um, but yeah, I think my future will be iCloud photo library. I'm just not there yet. And yeah, so basically the 15th of the month or thereabouts, I do one of the phones and the first of the month or thereabouts, I do the other phone. And she doesn't have her own fancy camera. That is correct. Although actually we just, uh, a few days ago, just got the Mark three version of my, uh, of our, uh, Olympus OMD EM 12, EM 10. And so technically speaking, if she, if she and I can split the lenses, uh, she could have her own fancy camera, but she doesn't really have the interest in it that I do. Cut the lenses in half. You know? Yeah, that's exactly right. That'll work. Man, if you think if you think my system is bad, you should see Tiff's system. Like, she has her own. Like, you know, I have my own crazy system that involves mm-hmm. multiple programs and multiple copies of files, and not really being able to find things very well. Hers is in that same direction, but even worse. Like, multiple apps, multiple files. She she's an Adobe Bridge user. Uh, she's like, she's, she's the Adobe bridge user. (laughs) Uh, and, and so like, there's like, you know, folders everywhere. She also imports stuff off of her phone, uh, like once every year or so, whenever it's time to get a new phone, um, about a year and a half or two years ago, upon seeing this crazy system one too many times, I forced her to, to configure and set up iCloud photo library. And so at least now, like that has all of her iPhone stuff managed. But 
the big camera stuff is all separate. Like she has her own like folder structure, basically just keeps stuff in folders based on what, you know, what kind of shoot it was, whether it was for a client or not, whether it was a family thing or whatever else. And she has her own system for organizing those and browses the music bridge. And I don't understand the entire system and she doesn't understand mine. And here we are. Uh, I'm sure together we both waste a tremendous amount of disk space. And then if you want to find a picture, you have to remember who, who took the picture and whose library it is, is it in? And then like, you know, whose Mac is it on? Or whose cloud store is it? And then you had to remember, was it a good picture? So it's in this, like, yeah. All right. Well, that's. See, and I don't have that problem. I have problems. <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong, but I don't have that problem. Yeah, your problem is you take the photo on like a magical journey through like seven different locations and applications until finally landing, hopefully intact in the final destination. That, uh, you are overblowing it, but your point is fair. <laughs> no, it's not overblowing. <laughs> you import it into, uh, into photos and then you have something crawl the photos library structure, which is not supposed to be a thing that you're crawling. No, 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 no. You're, you're overcomplicating it. So, well, you're not going to like what actually happens, but you are overcomplicating it. So it's sucked <laughs> into photos and then immediately exported as the originals somewhere else. So uh, photos is basically being treated as image capture, if you will. <sighs> That's pretty ridiculous. And then... Once it's dropped somewhere else, my little app goes and sucks them up and spits them out on the Synology. And then the geotagging thing is like, just get a camera that does a GPS already. Well, it <laughs> yeah. does. So mine does as long as I tell. It. Well, no, no, no. It's not on the camera. So I have, there's an Olympus app on your phone that you have to go into the app and say. Yeah, I know. I know how it works. Like, but they have cameras that have that like built in. Yeah, but uh, it's not mine. Like all of them now. No, but it sucks. Yeah. It's not really useful because like, like we forget how like GPS on the phones is a GPS. It's assisted GPS. That's assisted by the cell towers, and it helps them lock on a lot faster to satellites and get and get more precise and stuff. Uh, regular GPS that does not use cellular towers sucks. Like in comparison, trying to get geotagged uh, stuff from regular cameras that have their own GPS, not only does it slaughter your battery, but it just hardly ever gets a lock in a reasonable amount of time. So, like, you can be shooting, like, first of all, if you're shooting indoors, forget it. You have no no chance of that working. Um, and even shooting outdoors, like, it takes them usually longer to pick up a GPS signal than than you're using them for. Like, it, it's it's just not, it's not a very good feature, like, on cameras. It just, it doesn't work the way you think it does. And it makes it not very useful. Right. So my, my GPS workflow is basically, if I'm running about, so let's say I'm at Cars and Coffee or a park or something like that, where I'm moving a lot or an amusement park or the fair or something along those lines, then I'll actually spend the time to go into my phone, turn on tracking. And then when I'm done, turn off tracking, upload the tracking data to the, to the camera, blah, blah, blah. But more often than not, I'm at like my parents' house or at home or something like that, where I don't necessarily need to have the exact you know, longitude and latitude of every single picture. I just want to know that this was taken at my house or mom and dad's house. You know what I mean? And in that case, doing it via geotag is very simple because I just grab the batch of photos that is all at the same location and then drop a pin on the map. And that's that. So it it is probably more complex than the most best possible answer, but it's not as complex or time time consuming as you may think. And then we get to the fact that you have all your things in weird folders. But, you know, I don't. I don't do GPS on my things at all. I do what you just said. Is like if I if I really care, I will just manually tag them all with the location. But most of the time, I don't because I can see whose house it's at, and their house isn't moving, so it's fine. Um, and now I don't enable it on my phone because I have a Sony camera with a small battery, and I can't afford that kind of battery life. Um, anyway, my system is simpler than both of yours. Uh, the obviously the dealing with the family situation is not any better because Apple still doesn't have a good solution to this, but. 
I use Apple Photos. Uh, I connect my fancy camera to my computer or I take the SD card out and stick it into the back of my computer. That's how I get the pictures from my camera into Apple Photos. Apple Photos is on my wife's account because she's the current family owner of the family photo library. There is only one family photo library. Family just meaning me and my wife. My kids have their own photo libraries, but we don't touch their pictures because they're all garbage. Um, <laughs> uh, I, uh, my wife's pictures from her phone automatically go into this library because she's the owner of the, of the photo library. We play for iCloud Photo Library, so I don't have, don't have to ever touch her phone. You know, Her pictures just appear there right my phone i periodically take to the computer plug it in and import pictures from my phone into her library so we have one library in apple photos with all the pictures in it um and because my system is so simple i can explain what happens next i go through the photos and i mark the decent ones as favorites and i lightly edit them if i have time and that's my main workflow so if we were to look at my gigantic hundred thousand photo library and click on the favorites collection it probably narrows it down by a factor of 100, maybe more. And those are all decent photos. And so what this lets me do is like the, you know, like the screensaver on her Mac is the photo slideshow thing. I pointed at the favorites collection. So now when her screensaver turns on on her computer, uh, in the brief time between when the screen dims and when her Mac goes to sleep, it shows a bunch of pictures, all of which are good. And if I ever need to make a book of a vacation or make a calendar or whatever. I just go to the favorites collection. So that's my main workflow. I used to do it with stars. Favorites has simplified it. I converted all my stars into labels. So I still have all my old star writings, but that is the key component of my workflow, which is I take a ton of pictures and I go through them all. If only briefly to say, you know, look at all the pictures in photos after they've been imported. And every once in a while, I say, Oh, that's a good one. I hit favorite. Oh, that's a good one. I hit favorite. And if I say really good one, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to share this with the family mess with the picture crop adjust or whatever the one downside to this is when it comes time for me to like make a photo book or something i realize i edit very very few pictures and so when i want to make a photo book yeah i have my collection of favorites i'm like great here's the collection of all the pictures from our disney vacation all the favorites and it's about enough to fit in a book because most of them aren't favorites but then i have to edit every single one of those pictures because there's no way i'm printing <laughs> yep. a hundred dollar book without cropping and editing and adjusting every single picture um I'm better about that now with like beach vacations. I will do all the crop edit adjust and everything of all my favorites while I'm on vacation. Sort of like the end of each day, I do a full import and then I do crop edit and adjust all the favorites. But that is incredibly time consuming, even just to do it to the favorites, but pays dividends later when I want to make like a calendar or a book or something. So yeah, that's the system. I forgot to mention that I do in the case of indoor shots, try to do color correction at the import time. So the ones that I decide I want to keep, I will try to make them look not yellow. Uh, but uh, that's about all I ever do for editing. I, I don't understand how to do the magic that Marco and, and you and Tiff can do. Um, but that's okay. Moving on. Dustin Goldman writes, what kind of hardware and processes does Marco use to measure battery usage and power draw over USB? He briefly mentioned doing something like this with the new iPad PowerBrick, but I know that he's also taken deep dives into optimizing power usage for Overcast. This is actually two different approaches. So the the iPad Pro power brick testing was actually the much easier one. Um, I have a little dongle from Plugable uh, that is basically a USB-C power meter. And it shows, it has like a USB-C plug on one side and a port on the other. And you can connect it any way you want to a USB-C, you know, signal chain. And it will tell you in which direction power is flowing and how much of it is flowing, you know, what voltage and what amperage. That's how I'm able to tell, like, 
okay, there, there is like, you know, 19 watts traveling from this power brick to this iPad. Um, now, of course, you know, you have to consider things like power losses, efficiency losses, stuff like that when, when you're quoting wattages. Um, there's, it's complicated. Like, you know, batteries don't charge at the same rate constantly. They fluctuate depending on their current charge levels and whatever else. But anyway, that is how I measure that. Um, how I measured overcast power consumption on the phone is, is different uh, and a little bit older of a method that I haven't done in uh, probably a good six months uh, at least. But that was using uh, a private framework, using I.O. Kit on the iPhone to basically try to record the iPhone battery level and then just kind of graph it or like, you know, record it over time as Overcast is running so that I can get a more precise look at like what, how, how much battery consumption has happened over time. And I, I would, you know, use different conditions and retest and, you know, run the same thing again. That requires getting precise battery info from the software framework. Unfortunately, over time, the precision that that, that framework has given has decreased. Uh, so you can still do it. I th- I think it's it might even be down to like five percent intervals now. Like if, at first it was like it would give you like a nice big floating point number. Then it was down to like then it would only give you one percent intervals. And now I think it's five percent intervals. So only very long running tests are very useful at this point for that. Um, and so I, I don't do do a lot of that anymore. Cool. Thanks to our sponsors this week, Linode and Jamf Now, and we will talk to you next week. Now the show is over They didn't even mean to begin Cause it was accidental Oh, it was accidental John didn't do any research Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental Oh, it was accidental And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter E-Y-L-I-S-S, so that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M-E-N-T, Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C, U-S-A, Syracuse, it's accidental. We got a lot of feedback about Thanksgiving. People really enjoyed it. Like they enjoyed our discussion of it, and uh, I, I got to say the uh, the photos, Casey, that you sent us of what you had <laughs> at your Thanksgiving dinner, uh, and the photos that John sent of what he had with the antipasto followed by the very traditional Thanksgiving meal. I, it was exactly you know you all listeners. I, I don't think they're going to want to share these because they're like pictures with their family, but it is exactly what you expect it to be. Like it, it is precisely what you would guess from casey's description of basically having like stovetop stuffing and a packaged ham <laughs> and john's description of a regular thanksgiving dinner preceded by like two italian antipasta plates of like rolled up salami and stuff like that's exactly exactly as you guys promised it is <laughs> exactly what happened <laughs> <laughs> it is very true i skipped my dessert mine uh, very traditional dessert we just had you know apple pie and stuff well, yeah, I mean, that's like, you know, if, I, I think for however fancy you want to make Thanksgiving, you know, food and everything, I feel like there's actually less excuse to deviate in the dessert department because like the traditional Thanksgiving desserts of basically like pumpkin pie and then maybe apple pie and other kind of like, you know, fruit pies for the most part, that is delicious. Like you don't need 
different thing like you don't need to like like there's a, there's a lot of like you know campaigns right there out there to like only have side dishes or to like replace the turkey with you know fancier meats like not ham but you know, things mm-hmm. like like turducken or like you know barbecued things or whatever else and and those you know i i get the appeal of some of those things but i don't get people who try to get all fancy with the desserts because to me like a really good pumpkin pie which i'm happy to say we had uh is just great like it doesn't need to be like fancied up and hipsterized into some other kind of crazy thing like a really good pumpkin pie is just really good well honestly we normally have uh italian pastries and cookies as in addition to whatever other desserts we have to we just didn't have this time because we didn't get around to getting them but they go with everything just like you know all the other italian bracketing foods see and and i say (laughs) this as an italian american my half my family is italian and so i'm half italian and and I grew up eating a lot of Italian-American food. I have never really felt like the Italian-American cuisine really was very good at dessert. You are insane. You are insane. <laughs> Here we go. Insane. With it, the exception of like tiramisu. Tiramisu is excellent. Other than Italian that. Food is, Italian-American food is not one of those cuisines that doesn't have lots of good, well-known, well-loved desserts. It's just not. I mean, maybe you don't like them, but... They, what, what Am I not thinking of something? Like, I'm thinking of things like cannolis and cookies and stuff like that. Like, Yeah, yeah, they're great. I, I have never found them to be that good. Like, most of the cookies are... Well, they're probably... They're terrible in Ohio, guaranteed, but if you get... <laughs> even in New York, even, like, the nice ones that, that I can get here, like, I... <sighs> they I always try them, and I always want them to be really great, and they just never fulfill my expectations. They are really great if you get good ones. Well, maybe you haven't found a good spot. I don't know, but... Because they are really terrible when they're terrible, you know, and basically in most places, but you should be able to find good ones there. I mean, don't you like a good cannoli? not much i i don't like all that cream like oh god and maybe it's maybe i've just had bad ones i don't know i pignoli cookies nothing so, i mean sometimes like little rainbow sandwich things with the jam in between coated in chocolate i like the way all those things look <laughs> but so often they end up tasting like nothing or they just taste like vague <laughs> sugar dust right like well, those are bad ones i i have so rarely had any that actually had strong flavor i mean tiramisu can be really screwed up too i'm sure you've had really bad tiramisu at places too right uh, I've had bland tiramisu before where, where like it's like all like whipped cream or something. But when you do it right and like, I mean, I, I actually I actually made tiramisu when I was a teenager. Like when you do it right and you have like the lady fingers and you have the real espresso and you have Kahlua and you have uh, mascarpone cheese and everything like it can be amazing. But a lot of restaurants, you know, don't want to do all that. They don't want to have all those expensive ingredients around. And so they substitute stuff out or they omit stuff. And it, it can be somewhat bland. But for the most part, like if you go into a restaurant and you order a tiramisu, if the restaurant is a decent place, especially if it's like an Italian place, it, that's probably going to be pretty good. Uh, whereas if you order, you know, I mean, restaurants don't really serve like Italian cookies and cannolis very often. But like if you go to a good Italian bakery and you get those things, I feel like your odds are actually not that great that they'll be anything special. Mm, well, you just, just got to find good ones. And I'll, I'll warn you, lots of Italian restaurants do offer cannoli on their dessert menu. It is almost universally terrible. Don't even bother. Like it's like meatballs it's like you never you don't know what you're going to get and it's not going to be right so just don't bother it's very rare to find any restaurant that has an even passably acceptable cannoli cannolis are difficult i admit but italian cookies and other pastries are should be easier for you to find good examples especially where you are maybe you might have to go to the city anyway we'll, we'll, we'll revisit this no i agree it should be easier but for but for whatever reason i just like almost every italian cookie that i try is just tastes like nothing 
Hmm. Yeah, well, and I'm always, I always so, want them so badly to be better than they are because they look great, and I, I, some of them like I've had really good ones, so I know how they're supposed to taste, and I just can't find it. I don't think I've had real good, true Italian dessert cookies and things of this nature. Like I've had cannolis in the past, but I don't, I don't think they were particularly remarkable examples. I think I come down on Marco's side on this. Like they're, they're fine. Well, you've only had bad ones. It's like saying you don't like pizza because you live in California. Ooh, sick burn! But I'm right there with you. No, but but uh, like I've had I've had ones that other people consider good. Someone will be like, "Oh, I brought this from X and Y Bakery, like you know, and it's fantastic." And and I try it, and I'm just like, "Oh, okay," you know. And I just I smile and nod, but like it's not. It just it's so bland to me. Well, there's lots of variety, so you have to find the things uh, that you like. There's some things that you may find boring or are not to your taste, but there's lots of in the cookie realm. There are many many different kinds of cookies. I I gotta say, I I think in the cookie realm. Well, does France make cookies? I know they have a lot of other good desserts there. Yeah, they do. I, I think ultimately, I, I think France wins on dessert overall as a category. And if I had to pick somebody who won cookies specifically, I think I'd pick America. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that makes sense. What, what's a traditional French dessert? Like, I'm drawing a blank here. Eclairs. Tarts. Italian? Those tarts, I mean, I know they're, they're kind of a French thing, but a good Italian bakery, you know those fruit tarts that you love? You can find those there. And I, I, they're probably technically not Italian, but because they're always at the bakery that has the Italian stuff, I count it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that counts. <laughs> yeah, macaroons, as, as uh, Rick Allen in the chat pointed out, creme brulee. That's these are all French things. Ooh, like creme brulee. Ooh, creme brulee is real good. Creme brulee is another thing where it's like you can order creme brulee at a restaurant, and it's almost always at least decent. Like they can, if yeah, they really yeah. mess it up, like usually the way they mess it up is by firing the sugar incorrectly on top like if they mm-hmm. if they do it too little then you get the granules of sugar under the surface if they do it too much they burn it and if they do it too far in advance you don't have that like layer of like sheet ice that you can chip your stu- your spoon through on top you know marco i am right there with you on pretty much every one of the opinions you've had today which means you are really screwed because you must be very wrong i i'm honestly i'm very scared how much you're agreeing with me because i <laughs> i agree that that's not that's not a good sign for for food yeah, taste. Not, not good. Not good. Maybe it is Italian. I just Google Italian fruit tart, and maybe the thing that you think is French actually is Italian. It's always at the Italian bakery. When I was talking about French tarts, I was thinking more things like you know, like the citru- the citrus tart and stuff yeah. like that. But. No, but I'm talking about your your fruit tart. It, the, exactly the thing that you talked about on top four that I like too. That it's, you know the apricot glaze on top, and the the, the blueberries and the raspberries and the vanilla cream and the tart shell. If if that is Italian, then then. That is one of two great Italian desserts. <laughs> I can always up there, too. It's just hard to find a good one. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, what, is, what are these called, John? Pizzelli's? I'm, I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. Pizzelli, yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, okay. they're, talk about boring, but they're, you know, they're fun. Yeah, they're fine. That's, I, and I like them. I, like, I the, would, the, those aren't cookies. Those are more like an ingredient in another thing. <laughs> they're more like sweet pancakes. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like they're tasty, but they're not remarkable. Yes, exactly. I've consumed some chocolate chip cookies in my day that were remarkably good, especially for such a, such a on the surface simple recipe. But yeah, I cannot say that I've ever had a cannoli. And again, maybe it's maybe it's because I've just never had a good one, which is what John was saying earlier. I, but- I can almost guarantee that Casey has never had a good cannoli. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but there's a place in Little Italy that that in in Manhattan that. I know that people from the area swore by. I couldn't tell you the specific name of the base. Oh no, Arthur Avenue. Somewhere on Arthur Avenue. Does that sound right? I don't know. Does that make any sense? I think that's mm-hmm. right. Anyway, there's a place in Manhattan, a mythical place, where I'm told the Italian desserts are phenomenal. And I have had desserts from this area. And I thought they were good. But me. They're good. They're fine. 
and I'm sure I'm sure we're going to hear from lots of people like John who are going to be like, well, you just haven't tried my favorite bakery. But like, I'm telling you, like, if there was anything to it, like, you can go anywhere and get creme brulee or tiramisu, and it's probably going to be pretty great. I, I don't see. I don't agree with that. Tiramisu I find to be dire almost everywhere, and creme brulee is like fifty fifty. You don't like coffee. How can you possibly judge tiramisu? I like tiramisu. It doesn't taste that much like I, I eat coffee ice cream. Oh, bull. It tastes a lot like coffee. John, if it doesn't taste that much like coffee, it's not good tiramisu. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it doesn't taste like your coffee. It tastes sweet, you know. <laughs> also, a uh, real-time follow-up from me to me, uh, Arthur Avenue's in the Bronx, not Manhattan. And I'm sure I've already gotten 13,000 emails about that. But it anyway. doesn't matter. It's like, like, no, yeah, like, basically, like, if there is great like Italian cookie and cannoli types of desserts, I've never found them. Whereas I've found great versions of desserts from lots of other places. Well, that, if, that if you're ever s- in Boston again, I can tell you where to get <laughs> okay. good stuff. And then if you're in the middle of Long Island, I can tell you where to get good stuff. But that's about it. Would you like to share so you don't get 100 emails? I'm in the middle of Long Island a lot more than I'm in Boston. No, you're not. <laughs> you got to go. If you're out in Smithtown, you can go to Alpine, ba- Alpine Bakery as a good almost everything the cannolis are not as good as they used to be they used to make them smaller and the, the cream was a little bit different alpine baker is really good um and then in boston uh mike's pastry is the go-to place which are they're a little bit monstrous and weird in new englandy and they have a thing that they call lobster tail which is not obviously an italian <laughs> thing but if, if you get uh mike's cannolis uh, and a lobster tail hell get that too like it's all it's all good See, my problem with cannolis is just like it's just too much cream. Like, I don't want a dessert to be that much of like a cream and sugar bomb. Well, you gotta, you know, they have the ones that are chocolate dipped or with chocolate chips inside them. Like, there are ways to that, break. You're it just up. adding things. That doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, it does. It, it does help. It does break breaks it up so it's not as boring. You know. Yeah, I don't know. It's not not my style. I do love that, like, last week we had a Thanksgiving show, and now we had a Thanksgiving dessert show. Where <laughs> <laughs> Thanksgiving dessert is Italian cookies. Thanksgiving dessert is better than Italian cookies. <laughs> don't don't forget biscotti. Oh, God. Oh, okay. Biscotti, yeah, biscotti, you're good. <laughs> Although, again, it's one of those things where, like, it's real hard to find good biscotti, but I do agree I have had great biscotti, and so I'll give you that. I'm not entirely sure I'd classify biscotti as dessert, necessarily. You wouldn't? I would if you chocolate dip it it's an accessory to coffee and it's a very good accessory to coffee but i still i don't know if i would classify it as its own thing really it's dessert haven't you had uh, the, the ones my wife makes with the, the chocolate and in, inside them and then chocolate dipped i haven't had hers i have had ones that are like chocolate drizzled or chocolate dipped and they, they can be excellent as well um but i don't know it always seems like it's not really a standalone thing it seems like you 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 get those to dip into your coffee <laughs> they're plenty standalone we go we ate like you know multiple dozens of them during christmas and none of us have coffee they work fine believe me <laughs> yeah but you're not a coffee family you don't get it not a coffee family not a drug addicted family is that what you're trying to say amen brother not a family that will have a headache if you don't imbibe a specific substance every single day without fail that kind of family preach well, I mean, wouldn't you have problems if you didn't have, like, water every day? That's that's to sustain life, not to avoid a headache. <laughs> Coffee is life, man. <laughs> oh, God. It's actually not. <laughs>